Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tennis with an Accent. We are wrapping the year in special here, and this is more like a sequel of an episode. I'm joined by podcast supporters and good friends, Steve Flink and Mirth Ertunga. And we did a podcast in March where we talked about the ATP men from the 70s and 80s. And I listened to it myself not too long ago during the Thanksgiving break, I believe. And it was an enjoyable podcast to be part of. And there was a feeling when we had to wrap that recording in two hour, 20 minutes that more could be said. And now some of those players are carrying over to 90s. So I thought this was a perfect time to wrap up the season with a throwback of a podcast. So on that note, let me welcome my able guests and superstars of the show. Hey, guys, how are you? We're good, Sakib. It's nice to be with you again. Mert and I are looking forward to digging into the 90s. Yes, yeah, absolutely. great to be here. Delighted to be here. I'm a big fan of yours and a big fan of Steve's, of course. So I'm delighted to be here. So the parting comment, just like, you know, a TV show, what have happened so far? So Steve uh, and I agreed. And I think Mert, we all agreed that 80s belonged to Lendl. Uh, and Steve had Becker as the most impactful second player. So guess what? A lot of these names carry forward. And I want to start the 90s, and I'm being a biased Becker fan, but I think you both can admit, before the rise of Sampras, even the Courier and Edberg traded their uh, turns at number one, I always remember it being remembered as Becker's time for ascendance. He never took that over. So, Steve, you can go first. 1991, what are your memories from that period? Do you agree with me that it was Becker's time to be the absolute best, but then Courier comes knocking, Edberg was there, and he becomes number one, and Lendl is still a factor. He was number one for 12 or 15 weeks. So what do you remember of the early 90s when the decade changed? Yeah, I would. I, I envisioned it at the time the way you're describing it now. I thought we hadn't seen the best of Becker yet. We had already watched him become the youngest Wimbledon men's champion ever at 17 and 85. He defends it in 86 with a straight set dissection of Lendl and then wins again in 89 and uh so he had three titles in the second half of the 80s and I I I I thought maybe we'd see three more three or four more in the 90s it didn't quite happen uh those first couple of years of the 90s you're describing he suffered a couple of some difficult losses at Saqib I mean uh Agassi beat him in a couple of majors in 90 the French and U.S. Opens and the semis, and he'd taken the first set of Agassi in that semi at the Open. I thought maybe he'd win that. Then I think perhaps one of the most devastating losses of his career, and it was not a, no embarrassment, but was the loss to a, a red-hot Michael Steep at Wimbledon in the 91 final. That, I think, was very jarring to Boris. He spent, I'm sure Mert will recall, he spent so much of the match having a running conversation with himself. He, he was really not in a good state of mind. And I think he felt like he was the one with the experience. And it's not that he didn't respect Steve, but that he felt that he was a better player and he should win. And Steve took him apart. And I think those first couple of years, even though he's got an Australian in there, were, weren't as productive as he expected them to be or as his many boosters thought would happen. So that was surprising you described it well and then opened the window you know of course the other loss I'm not mentioning that I should and again devastating loss was that 90 Wimbledon final to Edberg it was the third 
final in a row that they had played. And Boris, you know, had it was like 25-9, 25-10 with him and Edberg. He had the great upper hand in the rivalry. And yet he loses two out of three Wimbledon finals to Stefan. The 90 final was was crushing too, as were those losses to Agassi, as was the loss to Steep, because he was he got crushed two and two the first two sets, won the next two, three and three, and went up three-one in the fifth and had an easy forehand volley that could have taken him to four-one that might have made all the difference and bungled that volley. And Edberg being the cool customer that he is, the implacable Swede came back to win it six four in the fifth. Uh, it was a great show of mental strength from Edberg, but something of a disappointment from Becker. So that was a, those two Wimbledon finals of 90 and 91 were, were pretty rough on him. And, uh, you know, obviously later in the decade, I mean, we saw him in the 95 final against Pete, there were moments. And then 96 was a great year for Boris, but those first couple of years, maybe they set a certain tone. I want to hear what Mert thinks about this. I keep it perhaps that Boris was no, longer the big match player he had once been or that we expected him to continue to be uh, because those were a number of, of really significant defeats. What were your thoughts on those, Mert? Steve, first of all, listening to you uh, describe the, um, that uh, five-set final against Stefan Edberg, I felt like I relived it. Uh, I, and a lot of your post-match analysis also contained great, uh, uh, you know, point, point, uh, point by point, um, um, re- uh, record of what's what what happened in the match and uh, yes you are so right that forehand volley and and as a consequence losing that match was devastating to uh to Boris for sure and I would like to add to just as a to to kind of complement what uh Steve just described I think Boris also suffered from um from maybe the same thing I'm gonna I'm gonna argue that maybe the, the Edberg also suffered from the same thing and also even maybe Landel is that early 90s were was the arrival of power tennis if you if you remember in mid 80s Landel's forehand was by far the biggest forehand in the game and it was just a crushing forehand it was considered so and uh, and then Boris Becker he's, he had this boom boom serve and uh, and then by the time the 90s came around now you had players just powering their way through bludgeoning forehands backhands serves they were now no longer the only ones out there doing those things and uh, and if you look at the uh, if you look at the 1991 uh, uh, scene, for example, the scenery in the four in the in the four slams. Okay, so Boris Becker beats Ivan Lendl in the Australian, but then you had Jim Currier and Agassi, and that that final was to me the 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 arrival of power tennis from the baseline. I mean, these guys at the French just bludgeoned the ball for five sets, and and I mentioned this in in a previous podcast too. I remember watching that with a bunch of other players and coaches in a big hallway at some tournament, and uh, and there was a big mishit by by Agassi, I think, and the ball flew in the air, and I remember a coach behind me saying "Hallelujah," so meaning like that more of this should be happening. People, uh, should, yeah. I mean, they they should be mishitting, framing more shots because at that pace, no one has seen hit. No one has seen anybody hit 20, 25 shot rallies at that pace, taking the ball early. Courier and Agassi were amazing. And then comes the Wimbledon final with Stich, who matches Boris Becker's power. You know, he serves, he serves very well in the in that final. And then later on, I mean, you you know, you you have all these power players coming into Goran Ivanisevich, who who had maybe the biggest serves of the 90s, you know, arrives. And and then you have at the French, you have these huge baseliners just hitting the ball really hard. And I just think that Boris, you know, Boris's uh, 
domination in the late 80s and also Landel's domination, they had they they just had a lot of company. And all of a sudden they had they were now no longer playing players who were overwhelmed by their power until they reached the semis or the finals. I mean, they they had to they had to face these guys in the quarters, semis and finals, and the road just got tougher. And on top of that, when you when you couple the devastating loss, losses that uh, Steve mentioned, and and I think that's you know the, that that was that was Becker's problem on top of everything else. Yeah, Murch, yeah. Murch, just one one quick thing. So give, I, I love all the plays you brought in, but of course, amidst all that was the emergence of Pete Sampras. We'll get more to him later, I'm sure. Pete was oh, not of, course, of the ilk, of course, not of the ilk that you were describing with the baseline guys, but he had immense power off his forehand, especially and obviously. The serve, and I think that for Boris, as Pete emerged and got better and better, that was the most uh, difficult part of it for Boris. He saw essentially a better version of himself. Yeah, I, I can't believe I forgot to mention Sam. No, no, absolutely. I mean, he would yeah. just serve. He's serving his forehand is right up there with the most powerful that ever played the game. Yes. Yeah. Again, the, his running uh, forehand was the best running forehand I've ever seen, even today. Yeah, you know? absolutely right. So, so Mert, I don't disagree with you in anything usually, but I'm going to just put a small disagreement here. I think your larger points are well taken. But I still think what Steve mentioned, Sampras was the next level of Becker. Like even Agassi said, they both do similar things, but Pete does everything a little bit better. And when Sampras came onto his own, there was no stopping him. I, I get it. But uh, the the uh, the part where I slightly disagree is Lendl, you know, the foreign evolution with Agassi and Courier was fading. You know, the guy came on the tour in 78. So by 90, 91, he was getting overpowered. But Becker was 22 when the decade turned over to 90. I think a lot of his losses to me are his stubbornness, changing coaches, spending too much time on the baseline. Because some of these losses, like 92 Australian Open to McEnroe and 91 US Open to Paul Harhouse, granted he was injured. These are the losses when he was the best player in the game. He should have made more inroads. If he was losing to Agassi and Sampras regularly in the semis, I would say, okay, as a Becker fan, you take it on the chin and move on. But he wasted, you know, from 91 Australian Open to 93, 94, when Pete really didn't become that force. I think that's the part because he has a winning record against Courier. He only lost to Courier, I think, in Indianapolis final, I think one match. And he has a 6-1 or 6-2 record against Jim. And Agassi had the matchup, but Agassi, guess what? Agassi was also not very consistent in that era. So I think Becker, I think to me, left a lot on the table. Uh, and him and Edberg never playing at US Open is just like the mini version of Federer Nadal. They never played on a hard court major. They played four times in majors, Edberg winning 3-1. And the odd one is the Roland Garros semis in 89. So I'll throw this back to you, Steve, because we also have to keep the media interest and the media recollections open. So what was that era like after McEnroe was still playing, but what was that era like covering Becker and Edberg in, uh, through the American vantage point? And then we'll talk about Edberg before we move on to the big names of Pete and Andre. I think there was great appreciation in this country for Becker and Edberg. I remember at the time I was the editor of World Tennis Magazine, and I, I'll never forget in 91, we almost got it, Mert, but we decided to put in advance of Wimbledon Becker Edberg on the cover, hoping for a four straight final. And Steak spoiled that. We almost had it again. Uh, if 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 Edberg could have beaten Steak, it could have been round four of Boris and Stefan. I don't think. I think that Becker, Sakib, to get to your point, though, I mean Stefan was appreciated, but because he was so low key and not demonstrative. Uh, Boris was a more large, was a more compelling figure, I think, to the t- average sports fan in this country, or even maybe the typical tennis fan, because of his emotions and because of the 
the, the immense power that he possessed. And somehow I think people, he was more evocative. Some, not everybody liked him, but they reacted to him more while there was reverence for Edberg. But there definitely was an appreciation of what they were doing at that stage early in the decade. A quick follow-up, Saqib, to you, what you just said, though, about Becker and the baseline and stuff. He was stubborn. And that loss to Agassi at the 90 Open, a lot of it had to do with his, his insistence on trying to duke it out with Andre for the baseline on this hard court where he might have been. And he was, Andre got the better of him from the baseline clearly over the last three sets. And a lot of people were b- baffled by Boris's uh, st- strategy that day. Why did he not attack more? And, and I'm, I'm not sure he ever adequately answered that question, but I, I thought that was an important point you raised about him. Um, Steve, may I ask a question to, as a follow-up to what you mentioned about uh, Boris and Edberg contrast with, as far as the media interest goes? Early in their career, would you say that there was the same type of contrast between Agassi and Sampras very early in their career, that Agassi was the flamboyant new kid on the block with with new clothes and everything, because people may may not remember, but Agassi early in his career was far different than late in his career. Yeah. And, uh, whereas Sampras was more subdued, quiet guy. And w- was there the same contrast between those two? Was it easier to write up something about Agassi than Sampras? I, I suppose that's true. I think that's a good point. Not for me. I guess, I guess personally, I always was more taken by Sampras, more impressed with his professionalism and his whole me approach. Too. His, his demeanor and his and, and he, he was such a gentleman. And I remember Lendl went out of his way at certain stages to say, you know, he eventually he essentially came out and said, you're raising your kid. Don't have it. You don't want him to be like Agassi. You want him to be like Sampras. And, and so I guess I, I personally was more impressed by Sampras's uh, outlook on the game. But I think your, your point is well taken. I'd be the general public. I think found Agassi to be the more compelling figure uh, because of all of the zany side of him and the clothing and the hair and all the, the, the entire package, the showman uh, throwing his shirt up into the crowd. He did things that players hadn't done before. And so, yes, the answer in, in, a, in a short answer, yes, you are absolutely right. So Mert, uh, remember in our eighties podcast, you gave your, you know, a lot of anecdotes and a lot of memories what Europe was like on the rise of Borg. So where were you in the beginning of 90s? And if you were still, you know, traveling across Europe a lot, uh, what was the Boris Becker, Andre Agassi stardom in Europe? Tennis has obviously transcended with McEnroe in the 80s. How were these guys received in Europe in, well, back uh, then? I was a player at the time. And, uh, and of course, uh, when I was, you know, traveling the small tournament, small circuit, there were a lot of German players at that time. There were not many German players up up top of the rankings, but in the in the lower part there were, and uh, they were glued to the TV every time Boris Becker was uh, was on TV, and uh, not just Germans actually, Swiss players, Austrian players, Danish players, uh, Swedish players. They were all glued to the TV to watch Boris. So Boris is and arrival, Mert, I mean, Mert, Mert, yes. a quick question. They were there to watch him and predominantly he was liked by these people or, or did some of them, did he rub some of them wrong? No, some of the Germans didn't, not, not all the Germans had nice things to say about him, but they revered him as a, as a someone who accomplished uh, what he had accomplished at, at that time. But yeah. uh, they would, they would make comments about him here and there that kind of showed that they were not necessarily as a character. They were, they were big fans of him, which 
which continues to today, by the way, when I speak to G German friends of mine from, from back then, they all say, oh, he's a great player and everything, but he was a little bit uh, on the crazy side. He was not necessarily a, a great guy to talk to, et cetera, et cetera. But then some of them, of course, uh, you know, love him. So, so it's, a, it's, a bit, it's a bit of a mix. Steph, if, if, to answer your question in a very positive way, Stefan Edberg would be the guy to, to, to ask. I mean, everybody loves Stefan Edberg. And uh, yeah. so Edberg, uh, and Edberg was another player that uh, a lot of European players just love to watch. And uh, Agassi, be because he was American and, and back then, you know, you didn't see too many uh, tournaments uh, that took place in the United States in, when, you, when you were in Europe, except the US Open and, the, and that, you know, quarterfinals and semifinals and finals maybe in the national TVs in the national TV, Agassi was, uh, was a larger figure than Sampras at the time, because again, of the things that uh, Steve yeah. just mentioned that. Yeah. And um, so, yes, Agassi was, uh, was uh, fascinating, but uh, Boris and Stefan Edberg, I'd say were fascinating on, on a larger scale. And, you know, like I was growing up or I was a nineties, I was a teenager. Yeah. So we were consuming tennis through weekly magazines that covered cricket, but tennis was huge in the big cities and our media was, I think, taking secondhand stories from New York Times or BBC. And of course, some of the Indian journalists made it to Wimbledon. But there was a huge fascination of the star culture, Becker, Graf, and then Agassi. Those were the players that we grew up on. Edberg was there. He was always reminded as a nice guy's finish for sometimes those kind of headlines. But there was this, this huge stardom. And Steve, I think that kind of ties a very important question in the era we are in right now with social media. And I'm not saying Boris Becker on his worst day was ever remotely close to being Nick Kyrgios, but I think larger than life sports figures like Becker was a star, Agassi was a star, their, their brattiness was selling papers and bringing more people to the sport and they were champions. But I think there's a shift clearly. Uh, a Becker and Agassi wouldn't be taken as kindly if they were operating the same way today in the year 2022. Of course, they had won, you know, Wimbledon and, and you know, at, at a young age, Agassi won in 92. But the larger point I'm trying to draw is with so much social media and so much that gets picked up these days, I think uh, some of the yesteryear stars got the benefit of uh, not behaving, you know, in the, in the most positive way. Of course, Kyrgios is a l very loose comparison, but my larger point is, these guys were growing. These guys were stars of a different era. They wouldn't be treated with same dignity today. I think. I agree with that. I agree. And let's face it. You mentioned Curious, and Curious justifiably does take a lot of flack for some of the things that he does. Uh, yeah, they would have would have been interesting to see how they might have altered their behavior, uh, what what they might have done differently, and how they conducted themselves, particularly Agassi, uh, how they would have gone about the whole endeavor. But I think you're right. The kind of scrutiny that they would have been under uh, at this time versus when they played, when the when you, you just you just didn't have this social media out there. So uh, they they there were newspapers and magazines and television and gossip and behind the scenes stuff. But out out front, they they didn't take it on the chin that much. You're right, and they could move past their transgressions pretty easily back then. Do you agree? Do you, you agree with that, or do you see it differently? No, no, I, I completely agree with you. And and even even if there was, even if there were social media back then, the 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 general concept of uh, how a tennis player would would behave on the court or what was accepted was different back then than what it is today. So it, you know they would be 
even with social media, they would they would be, in my opinion, under little less scrutiny than they would be today. Yeah. But uh, but but without social media, it's another level. I mean, just like Steve described, it's just a lot very different, very different. But but going back to my previous point, I forgot to add this. Uh, again, I'll go back to that 1991 Courier Agassi final. When Curry and Agassi played that final, everyone's eyes in Europe opened up to the to 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 just to just how powerful these guys were hitting, and they were both from you know Nick Balteri's. Uh, their roots were from Nick Balteri's, and uh, and then there was this school of big forehands, Nick Balteri school, coming in and in, invading Europe type of thing, and then Sampras, of course, was be, was uh, you know added to the mix, and uh, and then that and then really Europe then became a global watcher of tennis you know it was it was a big uh, you know no longer did you have just mainly european people on on, on the front stage in the minds of people but also now you know the the, the american contingency was uh was very much in in line to win french open to to dominate and and it was a fascinating to you know it was fascinating tennis to watch sampras carrier and agassi so uh yes that was a, that played a big role too i think you know the, to 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 top the Ed Berg, Boris Becker, fascination that I talked of earlier. Yeah, and it was also it was also interesting. You, you, you alluded to it twice now. It was such an important match. It got Courier on the board with his first major. It led him to, toward the number one. Because he was to win there and the French the following year. Then he won two Australian in a row in 92 and three. That was a great era for him that was launched by that unexpected triumph over Agassi in five sets, helped by a rain break. When he was down a set in a break, Jim was and got some great advice from Jose Agaris to move yes. back on his return of serve. So, but anyway, it was just so typical, I think, as we look at the decade that Agassi, who was expected to win the title the year before and lost to Gomez in the final. And he'd already been in a couple of U.S. Open semis in 88 and 89. He'd been knocking at the door. Now he loses two French finals in a row, goes to the U.S. final of, uh, he'd already, and he'd already lost the U.S. Open final to Pete Sampras which was something of a shocker at the time in 90. So he, all of these big matches, but he looked like he'd lost his chance, Mark, when the Courier match got away because the next year in Roland Garros, Jim destroyed Andre in the semis. Yes, yes. And I Please thought after that, I thought he'll never win the, he probably will never win the French now. And then of course he did eventually come back to win it in 99. He was always a confounding individual. I think he loved being a sort of a contrarian and, pulling off the unexpected and and but that that match with Jim was so important in terms of holding Andre back but pushing Jim forward yes and and you know he he, he, he some people even wondered if he'd win a slam because that that was uh he yeah. kept losing semis and fight. It, he kind of had the Lendl syndrome and early Lendl very early in his career he you know Lendl lost the finals too before exactly. finally Very winning one. And, and Lendl won a miraculous one. And that was his first one against uh, McEnroe at Roland Garros. And Agassi wins a miraculous one against Ivan Isevich. I don't think most people thought that Ivan Isevich was going to win that no. match, you know, with his game. And Agassi put up, put up, put out one of the best returning performances I've I've ever seen, you know. So. And that was after having beaten Becker in a five-set quarter. That was very impressive. And then McEnroe, okay, John was past his prime. I get it, but. Andre had almost not played that tournament at Wimbledon in 92. And That's by right. all reports, didn't pick up a racket between that loss to Courier at the Roland Garros and all the way up to Wimbledon. And he'd always, he'd always sort of disdain grass in the past despite reaching the quarters the year before. And what does he do? Again, that adds to my point about being confounding because we we really didn't think he was going to win Wimbledon. And nobody thought going in he had much of a chance to win that tournament. 
Yeah. And, and Steve, you were you had the best seat in the house covering these events. Like you said, in 88, he loses to Mats Valander in five sets in Roland Garros semis with the denim shorts, long hair, talk of the town. Everyone but me wanted to be like him and my friends. I didn't like the guy, but, uh, but you know, like of all the four Americans, Chang wins 89, then Courier comes from nowhere, wins a Roland Garros. Sampras was always talked about, wins US Open. And he was the leader of that pack and he hasn't won a final. So I'm yeah. sure media must not have been kind. I mean... I was still in India, but I think that was a big story. If this guy will fulfill his potential, there's all substance. There's no substance. Is all what? What is the Nike ad that goes back right? That image and substance. I'm forgetting. I'm murdering. Image, image is image is everything, or something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. So it must have been what? hard for him. I totally agree. I mean, in some ways, he was a prisoner of his early achievements to be in the top three in the world and win a whole slew of tournaments in, in 1988. You know, at 18, it was spectacular. And then he, he, he didn't do quite as well as in 89, but he was back in the open semis. And we all thought it was just a matter of time. And then to lose those two major finals in 90 hurt a lot. To lose the final to Courier in 91, Roland Garros stung. And then finally, he, he gets over the hurdle and wins Wimbledon. You're right. I think he personally must have been very envious. They all were, were friendly and respectful of each other, but there, was a, there were rivalries. And they, they, this was for the... They were searching for supremacy in American tennis, and it must definitely hurt Agassi because he was the front runner, as you said. So I think Wimbledon was a as as exhilarating as it was. I think it was as much a relief as anything else. Do you recall any recollections uh, during those days when he got snippy with media? The pressure was mounting. The questions keep coming. Do you remember anything? Any article? Any press room anecdote where he just felt the heat because the others were winning and he was not? No, I remember the press conferences. He just was very good at deflecting any any potential criticism. He had a good sense of humor, and he would he would manage to just take the pressure off himself and try to be humorous. He, he didn't get. I don't remember ever being defensive with the press, but he didn't. If he didn't like a question, he'd make a joke, and then it would on to the next question. But he he knew that he was being scrutinized, and I remember once writing myself an open letter to him in World Tennis because I didn't like a lot of the behavior and I was pretty honest about it. And I'll tell you what, Mert, I got, I've never gotten so many angry letters in my whole career uh, with possible exception of saying a few mildly critical things about Roger Federer. When I wrote for tennis channel, where people wrote in this similar allegiance to Agassi with his fans who did not want any part of a, of a columnist at world tennis saying that he could do anything wrong. Yes. And t- talking about getting snippy, I remember this Sakib and, um, uh, and Steve, it was in a smaller tournament. He lost in the final. I can't remember which one. It was in the United States, and he lost in the final of the final of a smaller tournament. This is when he still had long hair and the denim shorts yeah. and everything. And yeah. uh, apparently, somebody in the crowd called him a choker. And at the end of the match, he did, he remembered that. And when he was talking to the crowd with the microphone, he, go, he turns and says, "And this guy who called me a choker here, obviously, his ignorance goes unsaid." He said that, yeah. and yeah. there was a big yeah. roar from the crowd. So. I mean, imagine, you know, if, if, if somebody from the crowd yells that he remembers that enough to say it at the end of the match, imagine how he would have handled the social media circle of today. I mean, yeah. you, you never know. But, the, but again, that was very early in his career, which was a lot different than how he, how he um, you know, how he behaved much later in his career. His, dis- his disposition was 180 degrees opposite uh, much later in his career. than. That. Yeah, you're right. But it, it, it's true, Mert, but in turn, when his disposition changed and he put more of a premium on winning rather than entertainment, 
he got disqualified a couple of times in matches, you know, that's for, true. for profanities and he even got in trouble once in a, a Raptor semifinal at Wimbledon in 01, where the female, a woman lines woman reported him to the umpire for cursing. And he, he was really, now there's where some nastiness came out. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't, uh, he, like didn't he, he even, didn't he even hit the ball towards that woman when the match yes, ended he and he had to shake the hand and he hit the ball oh, yeah. towards that. Yeah. That's right. And, I think and even... then he lambasted her in the press conference and said some very, uh, some very questionable things, tasteless, tasteless remarks about her in the press conference when frankly she was doing her job and, and it, it, he, he had it coming to him in my view. But, but that was the interesting side is in those days when by the time we got to the Agassiz of 94, 95 and Gilbert was coaching him and his priorities had changed that I, I like the fact that he cared more now about winning and that it, he, he was the professionalism had grown, but, then it perhaps came with he shielded the, it better after that point perhaps maybe yeah. maybe yeah. but it but was yeah, interesting because i remember i remember being on a vacation once in vermont i'd go every summer between wimbledon and the open sakib on a vaca- family vacation and got in a conversation with the pro who was up there in vermont the, the sort of the resident pro at the facility and and he started talking about agassi and i said one of these days he's going to get himself disqualified he's got to really watch it with that language we picked up the newspaper the next morning and he'd been disqualified from a tournament for, for cursing. And this guy came to me and said, what did you know? I said, no, I was just getting, it was a guess. It was only a guess. <laughs> no, I think uh, you, you both are onto something. And, you know, like sometimes it's unfair because Andy Roddick once said to, I think one of the ESPN uh, journalists on Twitter, when she, she said something about him and he goes, you have an archive of my daily happenings at the office i don't know how you work at your office because they work in a public forum mm-hmm. so going back to agassi i think the 92 quarterfinal against courier at the open was a very good match but agassi i think crossed the line with the chair and I, I was surprised he wasn't not defaulted but he should have had a penalty and then the 97 rain match with carol kuchera when the moon balling happened agassi misbehaved badly in that match and of course yeah. i was never in the agassi camp so i was waiting while the umpire is not giving him any warning. The, the superstar culture always worked. And then uh, the one anecdote I'll throw in here is when Nick Bolletary was hired by Boris Becker in 94, Agassi had parted ways with Nick the year before. And Agassi, after beating Becker at the Lipton, they asked him, how well will Nick improve Boris? He said, oh, Nick is insignificant. He is good at convincing people. He probably convinced Boris that he's the reason I used to beat him. He said, but that's not the case. So again, yeah. there was, I mean, and, and these, these, these people, you know, sometimes we take this home and Agassi probably regretted saying this, but these are the anecdotes that sometimes stay with people's mind. So, yeah, that was my contribution to the conversation. But Mert, I want to ask you, since we are in Courier Agassi, where does the forehand of Courier and Agassi rank in the evolution of forehand if we use Ivan Lendl's forehand as a baseline? So fire away as coach. And you you also spent some time at the Boletary Academy yourself. Yeah. So compare the two forehands for the listeners. Yeah, they, I was there actually one year when they were both there, uh, in the, in when they were 14 and 15. And uh, But yes, the, uh, I would say, well, Carrier's forehand is, a, is I think, is, needs to be analyzed by itself. It, 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 it was a, it was a different... Uh, it was a different mach- machination than uh, than everyone else's forehand, but uh, because Curry used to play baseball when he was little too, and uh, his strokes were a little bit resembled that. But but I think what Curry and Agassi did with their forehands, uh, nor was to normalize Lendl's forehand. In other words, Lendl was no longer the only one who hit the forehand that hard, 
and uh, Curry and Agassi could hit it just as hard. And then later on, you had other players that came in. I mean, Ser- Sergey Bruguera's forehand was powerful, you know. And uh, just 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 to give you one example, later in the uh, um, you know later in the in the decade, Gustavo Quartin's forehand was thunderous. You know that that's just later in the uh, decade. But Agassi and Curry are basically normalized the, the power forehand, the big forehand. I mean, the big serve followed by the big forehand, the one-two punch was normalized by those two guys, I think. And it's, just, it's, it's really a, a very impressive to watch. Even, when, even for t- people who just watch today's tennis, if they haven't seen it, they go back and watch that 1991 final. I think they'll be impressed with uh, how hard these guys were hitting and how they were swinging at the ball. Do you have a reference? Sorry. Don't you think, uh, what, what strikes me as you're, as you're talking about them is the recollection that Andre had a much better back end than Jim. And, they, and so it was interesting that Jim maybe was more inclined to get around and hit his famous inside out for him. Not that Andre didn't do that a lot himself. Do you think that Agassi might have, have benefited from hitting more inside out forehands? Uh, I mean, I know he could trust his backhand more. It was a better produced shot. What are your thoughts on that? Yes. Uh, and, and I think, for example, in that one final that we're talking about, Agassi did do that very well for the first three or four sets. But yeah. I thought in the fifth set, Agassi, Agassi's discipline a little bit went out the window. In other words, he started going for winners on every single shot, and he started going for yeah. winners on both corners without really thinking maybe I should I should try to go more to his backhand, and he started missing more. And you know, Courier's backhand was good enough to get it back and 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 yeah. get it back deep, but just not good enough to put it away. Whereas Agassi's backhand, he, he could put it away. He could create angles. You know, Agassi could hit that short short cross-court ball to uh, to Courier's backhand and stretch him out of the court. But, uh, but you know, Courier had the better serve maybe, but in terms of everything else in the game, Agassi was one step ahead. So it was, uh, it, it must have been devastating for, for Agassi to lose that final because, uh, you know, when you, when you compare their games, I, I would put, you know, Courier's serve ahead of Agassi, but the rest of the, the, the rest of their games, Agassi matches up well with, uh, with Curry. And yet, you know, maybe it's the discipline, in the in the in the head when it comes to clutch time at that point in Agassi's career, Courier's career was perhaps more mature than Agassi, you know, in in the head. But uh, because let's also face it, Courier uh, after those two years of of um, of grand success uh, could not keep up with the rest of the top players the rest of the decade. No, uh, he, 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 you know, he. he so sorry, Mert. Go ahead. Finish your point. No, sorry. no, I was just going to say. Whereas Agassi was able to evolve more uh, improve his serve even you know add hit hit more shots like swing volleys taking the ball in the air etc whereas um you know courier couldn't keep up as well you know so agassi you know let his game evolve throughout the decade because he had the tools did a great job with that in turn i I think the prevailing view is akib at that time was that courier overtrained he set a new kind of, he kind of took another page out of the Lendl book with off-court training and worked really hard. And in retrospect, I think he, maybe he wishes he, he had not gone quite as far. It's hard to know, but... You burned out. Looked, excuse me? I'm saying he burned out. It seemed like he, you know... Yeah, he, burnout. And, yeah. and he did. And and although he had kind of... So he went from winning the French in 91-2 and two and finishing number one in the world in 92, also leading the U.S. to victory in the Davis Cup. The Australian in 92 and 93, you know, a U.S. Open final thrown in there was a really phenomenal period for him. 
And then after he lost to uh, Sampras in the 93 Wimbledon final, he also lost the French final to Bruguera that year. So he's in the first three finals, major finals of 93, and but lost the last two. Uh, it just it never was really quite the same player. A little of a resurgence in 95. But So I think Mert's right that Agassi's game evolved more. But in turn, I think Courier, yeah, he, he, he was certainly burnt out in some ways and was never able to recapture what he'd had at the start of the decade. And, and so young, so young to have that happen. I'd like to add to what Mert said, too. I think uh, he was more mature. Courier was also more fit. Because we remember in the early years of Agassi, he would phase out in a tough four or five set, or he would run right, out of gas. Right. He yeah. wasn't maybe he was all talent, but maybe he wasn't training. Point. But Jim was just like like Lendl two point like he was just oh, took he the was. Lendl the Lendl game to the next level. Yeah, so Mert, he no, was saying he something. Patterned, he patterned himself in some ways after Lendl, I think, and, and yet I, I I still believe that he must some part of him must wish he could have it could do it over again because there should have been. A, a longer span. He should have been able to take it deeper into the 90s. Now, one of the problems, of course, that we can't ignore here is that when Sampras took over from him, in his heart, he knew that Pete was a better player than he was. That also had a lot to do with it. It was discouraging for Jim because I think a part of him knew he'd never he'd never be back on the throne himself again or probably wouldn't because Pete was starting to peak. So that was also a big factor. Um, right uh, to to add to that last point Steve made, I, I listened to a Courier interview. I remember three or four years ago, and that very question. Actually, they were talking about Andy Roddick and how Andy Roddick was number one in two thousand three. But then he couldn't. Why didn't he become? Why did, did could he no longer capture that same uh, same top form? And and Courier's answer was, well, it's not a question of his top form. He he did he did remain in form for a few years. He had some good years after that. But it's just that, you know, you had a guy named Roger Federer and a yeah. guy named Rafael Nadal who were who were just better than him, better movers. And, and, and you know, they, they, they were just less organized in their, you know, Roger Federer was less organized, less structured with his game in the early 2000s. But then once he gained structure, once he got organized, he was, you know, Roddy could no longer surpass him. And he then said, I compare that a little bit to my situation. You know, I, I, I happened to win the, my majors when Sampras was not organized yet with his game. You know, yeah. he, had the, he had the tools. He was a better player than me. He had a better serve. Every shot was better than me. But except that um, except that he was not structured and organized with his game. And once he got mature and got, got organized with his game, he said there was no way I was going to surpass him anymore. You know, that, yeah. that was so Steve, uh, what Steve mentioned is actually right on the money. You know, so he, he talked a lot about Sampras just getting, was just better than him after that point. But that's very interesting because I'll go back to Steve's point again. You know, hindsight, everything is clear and we can make all these conclusions because Jim and Pete and Andre were like same generation, same age, similarly like Mac and Lendl. So if Lendl was getting discouraged, he didn't give up. He had like an opening that just like, you know, floodgates opened when he won that uh, 84 Roland Garros and then John took a sabbatical and never looking back. So Jim got a head start. But and I totally agree with the larger point that Pete was the absolute peak among all these guys we are talking about. But Jim's fall from the ranking wasn't just he became number three. He fell out of the top 10 pretty quickly. So I think maybe it impacted him in other emotional ways. And Lendl, to me, despite losing to Borg and sorry, McEnroe and Connors, was just consumed to improve. And he didn't give up after four or five years as being the bridesmaid or the best, second best guy. So I think that's very interesting. And, and Steve, wasn't Jim reading a book in a changeover once at an yeah. indoor tournament? Yeah. So I think, yeah, yeah. He, he had a lot of personality, but just it's too bad that his tennis kind of uh, 
you know, he hit like a roadblock. I don't know. I would love to have him on a podcast as an open request if someone knows him, but, uh, but definitely I think he's a very fascinating character. So Steve, how were you guys in the media room reacting to career success when you were pretty much programmed that now it's going to be Agassi and Sampras you'll be talking about. So were you guys kind to him? Were you taken by surprise? What was your equation with Jim Courier in the media room? I, I, well, I think we were definitely surprised. Nobody was was expecting, that for the reasons we cited a few minutes ago, that Andre was the one that was supposed to get there first. And we also were wondering when Pete was going to follow up on his 90 U.S. Open win, which was such a startling, spectacular run where he knocked off Mooster in the round of 16 and then went on and beat Lendl in five and beat Mackinac in four and Agassi in straight. So here's Sampras get, becoming the youngest U.S. Open champion ever at 19, men's champion. And so we were wondering what we saw him go through a couple of difficult years, but it was in that period that Jim played his best tennis, 91, two into 93. We were very impressed. I mean, I, I, I thought we were looking at what I thought he was going to be around a long time and was going to have a Lendl like career. Uh, was my feeling at the time, and I think a lot of other reporters shared it. There, there were more majors in him. We were waiting for Sampras to reemerge and start, and 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 then when he won Wimbledon in '93 and took off again, nobody was surprised by that. But I didn't think we'd seen the end of career. Here he was playing a very respectable final against Sampras in the Wimbledon final, losing the first two sets in tiebreakers. Eventually, lost in four. I, I thought there was much more. Uh, there were going to be many more shining moments for Jim Courier. So we had come to respect him as, as maybe the ultimate professional in terms of training and preparation and always being ready. And as you said, in, in immensely fit, fittest player in the game. So it was hard to imagine that the slide was going to be as deep as you just described, Saqib, where, you know, it wasn't that he just went down to two or three in the world. He slipped drastically, then had that Nice resurgence in 95, but that didn't really last. So, yeah, I, but, but I do think within the, the chambers of the media, uh, everybody, we may have been surprised by Courier, but you, you couldn't help but respect him and, and the uh, professionalism that he brought to the table. So Mert has mentioned about the 91 final at the Roland Garros, which is like a trailblazer kind of a moment. So, Steve, since you already touched upon the match, I'm going to ask you, is the Lendl Sampras quarters of the 90 US Open. I think that was also like, you know, passing of the torch, right? You know, in some ways, Lendl was going for his ninth straight final. I think he would have beaten anyone that year in his form, but Pete. It's fair to say the way he was playing in the US Open, even though he was a fading force, but he was pretty familiar with flushing. So what do you remember of that match? Sampras won that in five. And it's it was one of the most talked about matches of that year. Yeah, it was a big, that, obviously that was, that was a changing of the guard match in so many ways, as you just said. Well, it's in the afternoon. So Sampras often preferred the evening conditions. He, he loved playing at night at the open and relished, relished that atmosphere and didn't like the, the intense heat as much. This was not a terribly hot day, but it was a day match. And he managed to get through the first two sets, Pete, and the second set was a real scrape that he eventually won in the tiebreak. And then at that stage, you had to like his chances and thought he was going to pull off this upset. And, and Yvonne came roaring back to win the third and fourth. Sampras kept the fourth competitive, which was important coming into the fifth. But considering that Lendl was still known so much for his fitness, and here's Pete at night, and it se- the match seems to be slipping from his grasp. But it, it told us a couple of things. It's, it, 
Yvonne was now just as Pete told me when I wrote the book on him, Pete Sampras Greatness Revisited, the biography that I wrote a couple of years ago. He said when he looked back on that match, he felt that both Lendl and McEnroe were just slightly past their primes. And, and he, he could sense that over the course of the year, that Yvonne hadn't been quite as great as the Yvonne of, say, 90, 82 through 89. So here, so that was maybe in the back of his mind because he still felt confident going into the fifth. Just about anybody else, I think, would have picked Lendl, you know, after winning the third and fourth. And Pete beat him 6-2 in the fifth and was probably his best serving set of the entire match. And yeah, that was that was a, that was a critical moment in his career and and in Yvonne's too, because he said he would, he talked to me for the book also about how disappointed he was because he thought after the comeback that he was he could he could win that match, but Pete served him off the court in the fifth. And then what was remarkable, Sakib, was as great as he was in that match. Looking at it from Sampras' standpoint, then he went on to play even better against McEnroe and he, and against Agassi, his best performance of the tournament. So it, it was as if with each match, from Mooster to Lendl to McEnroe to Agassi, he got better and better and better. So it was some. It was kind. Of, it was really sort of a. It was just a, a remarkable fortnight for Sampras, who came in as the number twelve seed and would have been happy to get to the second week. But for Lendl, it was it was a reckoning of sorts. Uh, you know, after that, you know. He, the lend the, the the lendl of the years to follow i mean he, he there, there was a there was a, a decline there's no doubt about it and you're right he'd had eight finals in a row he'd won three opens lost five finals and many thought he was headed for his ninth final in a row but sampras and frankly i think he probably would have made the fight i i i would have probably taken him to beat McEnroe in the semis and play agassi in the finals so that was that was a fascinating match yeah, I saw that Lendl beating Agassi because Agassi didn't beat Lendl for the first time in his career till the 92 Canadian. So yeah. that rivalry changed then. I think it was 6-3 in the end. Lendl had won yeah. the first six matches. And so Lendl, and, and of course, two of those were the, were the open. You know, it, it was the 88 semi and the 89 semi, you know, where Yvonne had handled Andre. So if he could have gotten by Pete, and then probably I think would have beaten McEnroe, we'll never know, he might have taken that title. So yeah, the Nike Nike dream was born, I think, in that final Mert. Uh, what do you remember of that one-sided match between Agassi and Sampras? Sampras was just, you know, he just played some tennis from the future, I think. He was serving and volleying harder than anyone else has at that point. It just looked like a different player. Yeah, I think your last sentence tells uh, pretty much the, recites my memory of that match. I, I couldn't believe. The, the, I don't remember that match as clear as uh, the, some, of, some of their other matches. Because because maybe perhaps it was one sided, but I do remember Sampras blasting one serve after another, and and you know all of us considered Agassi the best returner in the game at the time, even though it was early in his career. We thought, okay, he's going to take the reins of the being the best returner in the world from Connors, who was who was a great returner uh, at his time, and uh, and yet Sampras just blasted serves left and right, and we couldn't believe, you know, but, but that was the first time I actually saw Sampras on TV. And we were like, well, wow, wow, where, where, where did this guy come from? I mean, we did see the scores on how he got to the finals at the time. But I remember clearly saying, okay, it's the first time I'm going to watch him. And, um, and the, just the, the serve was, was, was amazing. You know, there have been bigger servers than Sampras in the 90s, 2000s, and even 2000, 2010s. But nobody served as effectively as, as Sampras. You know, his, his, his serve is the best I've ever seen, uh, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah I, because first was, and second, 
first that's it it was the package of the two and the fact that, that, that so many people believe that the second serve was essentially another first serve and the second serve only got better murder as, as his career went on he served in Bali much more behind the second which he didn't do in those early stages but that day yeah and it was the placement just the impeccable placement and deception he had on that serve and I, I spoke to him a lot about that murder when I did the book and about the fact that he'd see Wozetsky and Filipusis and Krychek and other guys serving these bombs. And did he really care about the speed gun? And he said, not at all. Not at all. It, it, you know, he would look over occasionally and see 127 or 129 and just to get maybe a little gauge. But he was not he was not worried about that. Where him, it was about finding the corners and getting a lot of first serves in and backing it up with the first volley. But when he beat Agassi that day, Never, it was four, three, and two in that 90 final, and he never lost his serve. And so he was putting Andre under so much pressure on Andre's serve because he was getting so few looks at Pete's. And, and Agassi, of course, didn't serve much better. By the time they played their epic quarterfinal in 2001, or the finals in 02, even, that Agassi had a bigger, better serve than he did in these early days. But that was, that was just, Sampras said it was, it was almost like he just, he just treated it like it was another match. It was like, He'd walked out into the park to play a match. He didn't let himself get consumed with it being a U.S. Open final. And then he he said he'd never played that well, certainly to that stage of his life, even in practice. So it, poor Agassi never knew what what hit him. Yeah, and, and I would add to that, uh, uh, the, even their last match, 2002 U.S. Open final, Sampras' serving was one of some of the best I've ever seen. I mean, oh, he, yeah. he did, that match was a festival of first serves and second serves. Uh, followed by, if the ball came back, followed by big, big forehands. So, I mean, Sam, Sampras had no interest in having any rallies of any kind in that match. No, and, no, no. And never gave Agassi any, any rhythm. But the two matches that I, that I will just add to, to, to kind of strengthen and reinforce what we were saying earlier is the 1994 Wimbledon um, uh, final with Pete Sampras and Goran Ivanisevic, 7-6-7-6-6-0, oh, and the 1995 semifinals with the two of them again. You know, that's just a, 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 these guys were serving lights out. And I would call Goran Ivanisevic one of the top five best servers of all times, on, on, at, at least in the open era. And yet the difference in that match was Sampras' serve getting more clutch points out of, you know, Sampras squeezing more clutch points out of his serve than Goran, who just couldn't maybe hit the ace or couldn't place the ball as well or even double faulted at some points. And but these guys, both of them, Goran Ivanisevic too, his first and second serves are incredible. You know, and yeah, uh, if you put the whole package together, he might be right behind Sampras. But you know, difference in those two matches was, in my opinion, Sampras's serve being a tad better than uh, and more clutch than uh, Goran's. No, I couldn't agree more. And in the again, the first time that you know the six six in love, he, he never lost his serve in that match, and. And he didn't get discouraged when, when at the end of the first set, Goran staved off a whole slew of set points against him, holding on from love 40, 15, 40 to get into the tiebreak. And Pete just was better under pressure in the tiebreaks. And then that 95 semi was, 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 was a much tighter match. It was a five setter. But again, Sampras in the fifth set just served lights out all through the fifth. And it was, and it, poor uh, Goran was dismayed because, you know, he was right in that match. And then, course they had another one in 98 that also went five that that pete won but you're right i would totally agree with mert's point uh Sakib. I, I i think you have to put even this even this serve 
as you know, and I, I would put Becker's in there too, and obviously Pete's, but they, 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 those are three of the five best serves of all time, in my view, along, and Pancho Gonzalez would be the other one. And, and uh, at this point, I, I, I don't know, I might throw Roger in there at the bottom of the top five, but the other four have to be in there. You know, it's funny, Murd brought that 95 semis because that was my first summer in the U.S. And I was getting ready for the big Becker-Agassi match and I saw the Ivanisevic match against Sampras and McEnroe said something when Becker beat Agassi because Becker didn't miss a single first serve in the two tie breaks against Agassi that day. He was on fire. He said, Goran Ivanisevic should learn something from Boris Becker when the points are like for the taking of the big points or whatever we call them. Because Goran missed a lot of first serves in the fifth set against Sampras in the semis. And, and between Goran and Pete, it was just like roulette. You know, whoever makes a good chip return or a one block return or a pass, that's all it took. And Sampras used to get fits. And Pete and, and, and Steve would remember, outside of Grand Slams, for the longest time, Goran had a winning record against Pete. And then Pete turned it around. He won all the big points in the big matches because he just held his serve and nerve better than Goran. Goran was more erratic, I think. Uh, it's fair to say, Steve. Yeah, totally fair. I mean, it was the longest time. Yeah, it was It was more so in the early years because the bench, I think, it ended up 12-6 for Pete, and he won, say, eight of the last nine. He dominated the, the latter stages of the rivalry. But early on, it gets back to what you were saying. There was so little in it. And, and this what, to me, actually made, Mert, you're, you, you went out of your way to allude to this because we were talking about Pete and Andre. But I found those Sampras, even Isovich matches, really enjoyable to watch. I think people that know the game should have appreciated more what they were doing out there and what it took for them to, to somehow find a way to beat each other on a fast court. And I think that uh, you know, it was a question of Sampras's temperament and his, his coolness under pressure. And, and, and Goran told me when I wrote the Pete book that, you know, he said that Pete knew, he said he knew I was going to do something stupid. Well, that was the gist of it. Somewhere along the line, I was, I was going to, you know, he, he knew that about me. He said, he said I would make a, a, a bad move at the wrong time or I'd serve a double or I'd miss an easy volley and I'd, I'd make those mistakes and he wouldn't. So he appreciated that in Sampras, the, the ability to play your best under pressure, not give anything underway, give, not give anything away when, it, when the chips were down. But I thought yeah. those matches were really fascinating to watch. And, and well, you knew that Sampras regarded Ivanisovic as his most dangerous adversary on a grass court. Absolutely. Yes. And I think it's an interesting point you mentioned that at the end there, because, uh, you know, sometimes some uh, tennis experts have blamed the Goran Pete Wimbledon matches for slowing yes. down, for slowing yeah. down the game, you know, make, making the balls larger and more fluffy in yeah. the late nineties and then slowing down the surface, uh, you know, uh, uh, subsequently. And, and a lot of that was blamed on some of these Goran uh, Pete matches, but I, but like Steve, I enjoyed those immensely. I thought they were, the, they were two of my, I was a fan of both of them actually. And the, and the, the, the some of those matches are fascinating the way the match turned around and how Pete always uh, stood tall when, when crunch time came and uh, Steve is correct. You know, Goran beat uh, Pete, in their first two matches on grass very early in their career, but then Pete won the next four. And um, so it was four and two on grass. And, but, but I would like to put a footnote for Goran Ivanisevic here. He's because he didn't win a major in the nineties. He's often not considered as, as you know, one of the elite players of the nineties. He won his major and he's actually only non nineties title at yeah. Wimbledon in 2001. 
all right. of his titles came in the 90s and there yeah. are 21 21 titles i mean then they, they're on all surfaces actually 14 of them indoor, uh, indoors you know he, he could win on carpet hard grass clay and uh he, he's he's underappreciated you know because because he didn't win the big major in the in the 90s yeah, yeah so. no, I totally agree. And I think that with the matches you're alluding to, of course, were early on, one of them, I think, in Manchester, England on the grass, and then the Wimbledon semi of 92. And Sampras would talk to his coach at the time, Tim Gullickson. He was discouraged early on by all of Goran's aces. And I remember Tom Gullickson said to me whether, that Tim had said to Pete, look, what do you, how do you think you make, you make people feel when you serve all those aces and blast them off the court? Don't you realize he has a right to try to do that against you? And I think they got through to him. I think I think that he was able to adjust. He never got over a certain apprehension, and as anybody would, to play Gorn on a grass court. It, it never took it for granted. But he adjusted to the idea that he was going to see something of himself across the net and just to stay cool and, and use your temperament as, 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 as a strength and your ability not to crack under pressure. Because, Mert, I honestly think that Pete Sampras rarely choked rarely choked and that's not talked about enough i don't think is that you know he that was the the strongest part of him as a competitor is that sure he might have been feeling something inside but he didn't show it and he didn't he just didn't crack under pressure in so and we we have the evidence of so many big matches and you didn't see him up five three in the fifth against somebody in a big wimbledon semi or open semi and not close it out and i and that and that was not as, not necessarily so obviously for Gorn, but all the points you're making about Gorn are so true. And fortunately for Gorn, he won that as a wild card in 01 at Wimbledon and, and beat Rafter in that memorable Monday final. And that's, of course, was the key in the end to Gorn Ivanisovic becoming a Hall of Famer. All right. So I want to go back to a couple of years of uh, Sampras. We covered a lot of ground here. So, Murray, I'm going to ask you this. And maybe Steve, of course, Steve has written a book on Pete. But, you know, we talked about the 90 final when Sampras beat, you know, Lendl, McIndoe and Agassiz to win his first. And he was expected to run the table. The floodgates should have opened like it did for Roger Federer at the 2003 Wimbledon. But for Sampras, it took a good two and a half years again to win his next major. So, Murat, if you were following closely, were you, how surprised were you that it took him that, that while? And oh, you think the 90 final just happened and then he got organized a little later? Is that how you saw it? Yeah, I see it the same way as Jim Courier does. I think he had uh, he when you're that when you're young and you go on a on an incredible run, sometimes things just come together and you just start playing better and better. He, he his run in 1990 was similar to Guga's Gustavo Quertin's run in 1997 French Open final. Just you know, not expected to win, coming out of nowhere and and just catching great rhythm and uh, beating one great player after another. And by the time you get to the semis of finals and finals, no one can stop you. And uh, but then you you win that title that you didn't expect and you have it in your pocket and you sit back and think, oh, my gosh, what you know, what did I just accomplish here? And and like Jim Carrier said at the time, his game was not as organized as, as it got, you know, in, in the, the in two or three years later. So I don't see I'm, I'm not that surprised by it. I can I can see that happening to someone. And uh, and I'm sure it took him a year or two to sit down with his uh, team and figure out how to put everything together so that it can become a more, more um, consistent top elite player. Uh, Steve might have some insight to that. Actually, I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear some of their conversations in, in 1990, 1991, when he couldn't win 
the next major title, you know, in 1991 and then maybe early in 1992. But uh, yes, yeah, I would agree with Courier there. Yeah, no, I think that Mert, I think he was burdened. He definitely was burdened because it had happened. He was a bit startled himself. It happened so fast. And suddenly he's holding the U.S. Open trophy. And at the time he said, I'm the U.S. Open champion and nobody can ever take this away from me. It was like he was it, it really he hadn't really been prepared for this coming in. And he just took it match by match and got on this roll the way you described. And and here he is, the number 12 seed making this kind of noise, but not but just keeping his life simple and going back to the hotel and not wasting any energy. And so suddenly he's the U S open champion. Then he, I think he felt like 91, you know, he, he wasn't prepared for all the pressure. And then you made that famous remark after he lost to courier in the quarters of the 91 open. It was like, he was relieved. He's glad to have that done as opposed to what he would have said later in his career. That really irks me that I lost that match. I should have defended my tie. No, he was like relieved that the pressure was now off and he'd had a very good summer in 91 leading up to the open leading some knowledgeable observers to believe he might defend his title. And it didn't happen. And the 92 was a very good year. And he won five titles that year and you semis of Wimbledon where he lost that match to Gorn. And, but then of course, what he talked about the most Mert, in the book, and he's talked about this many times before too, but he crystallized it for me was this loss to Edberg in the 92 U S open finally, he so badly wanted to get back on the board and he felt, despite the fact that he'd been on IV treatment overnight and he'd come off the court against Courier in the semis, not feeling very well, he kind of crouched over near the end. He was not in good shape. So it wasn't a typical Saturday night into Sunday, but he never blamed that for why he lost to Edberg in the 92 Open Final. He thought, he thought that he kind of gave in. He didn't totally surrender, but he felt he kind of gave in, not gave up, but gave in. And, and it really bothered him. And he said he, he, it was hard to look himself in the mirror. And he'd be constantly thinking about it in the months that followed. Uh, you know, it, and he realized that that was, that was like a, a major turning point, uh, pivotal moment in his career. Because now he realized, I can't stand the feeling of losing one of these, particularly if, if I feel like I had a chance that I didn't quite give everything I had to myself. Because he won the first set in that 92 final against Edward. Edward took the second and then Sanford served for the third set, threw in a few doubles, lost that service game, unlike him not to close it out on serve, and then lost the third in the tiebreak and went down kind of tamely 6-2 in the fourth. Nedberg, of course, was one, on one of his great runs because he'd won three matches in a row from a service breakdown in the fifth set against Krychek, Lendl, and Chang, the Chang match lasting almost five and a half hours. So Sampras was really... I guess disappointed in himself, Mert. And I think that's why everything came together so well in 93 is that 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 bitter taste of defeat against Edberg. And it wasn't that he didn't have great respect for Stefan or anything like that, but he felt like he had let himself down. And so it all kind of makes sense looking back. Hard to live up to expectations in 91 after winning the Open sooner than he would have expected. And then coming so close in 92 and being in the finals of the Open again. And then 93, once he won Wimbledon, then he went on and won the Open. Then he just dominated the game, really, for the next six years. And that was the start of his six-year run, six years in a row at number one in the world. I'm going to be a Saki's nightmare here and jump up uh, five years ahead because you mentioned, because uh, I'm sure Saki wants to keep this structured, but but <laughs> yeah. there's something that yeah, Steve mentioned I, in or, there. You and I, you and I are both giving, I, I, we both must apologize to Saki because we yeah. keep going <laughs> off track and he's the only one 
saying staying on a straight line but yes. go ahead make, i promise sakib i will i will, no, I will this, shut is, up this is all this. good stuff but I mean, the, but the one thing that steve said triggered a memory of mine um steve said he he rarely ever um gave up or or got, you know tamed uh, late late in a match and that happened in that match and he was not happy with it with it and you're, it's true you know just like we talked about just now you know sampras rarely ever choked and he rarely ever gave up he was a great fighter but i do remember Steve, you, you'll have better insight to this. I think it was in 1996. Uh, he played uh, Patrick Rafter in the in a semifinal. Where I thought... 98. 98. 98. That's right. Okay, 98. Yeah. Where he played uh, Rafter in a semifinal. That's right. It was the second year that Rafter won it. Uh, the, he played in the semifinal. And I thought in the fifth set there, he got he looked disgusted and kind of faded out uh, late, in, late in the fifth set. You know, the one that he lost 6-3... Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, I wonder if he had any anecdotes or any comments to say about that to you. Yeah, I, I, in, not, to, I, I don't, I, I don't want to be accused of making excuses for him, and he wouldn't make the excuse. But he, he hurt his leg in the middle of that match, yes. and he actually managed to still go. And that happened like late in the second. He managed to kind of bluff his way through the third and go up two sets to one. But I think he was really um, disappointed that he could feel that he was not going to. The movement was restricted enough that he was not going to be good enough to beat a top of the line Patrick Rafter. So I, I think that was a factor in why you saw him looking so discouraged and disgruntled or just not quite himself in that this setting against Rafter. Because normally you're right, it would have been a a, a, a bruising fight to the finish, and he, he looked a little bit resigned to it. But I believe it was the injury, and uh, that's just my take on it. He never. He, he, you know, he when we talked about it for the book, he had a vague recollection of that injury. But I know at the time it was no, there was a, it was there a was big deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did I get think, injured in the second yep. set. I remember. Yeah, I guess. I guess I'm thinking. I'm thinking he, he won the point. third, and yeah, yeah, yeah. He still won the third to go up two sets to one. But my point is, he would never, even after the match, he didn't want to talk about the injury much. He was very good about those things. I'm, I'm saying that is certainly the way I, I perceived it, and I think others as well. And Steve, I think you and I talked about this when we did the Sampras Greatness Revisited podcast a couple of years ago. I have a recollection. He was disappointed with the crowd, too, because being an American, the crowd was not pro-Rafter, but Rafter had his fair share of fans that day. And I think Pete, slightly playing with an injury, I think he wasn't too happy in the press how the crowd kind of became, you know, towards the end, like they were happy that Rafter started, won. I think a few of them actually boo- booed or, or you know, you know, because they, they, they obviously don't see the nuances. And uh, they they were thinking that uh, he was just kind of tanking the last game or two. And uh, yeah, you're right. He was upset about that, rightfully. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about what you both are saying is the recollection I have is that's all true. There was a great moment when Sampras won a really hard fought tiebreak in the first set. And he came running to his chair. Yeah. And he started putting his hands up and, and he literally yelled to the crowd, come on, come on. It was like he was saying to them. And it was so on. It was in such an unusual moment for him, but he was sort of wasn't angry with them. He just wanted to get them more fired up to say, "Look, I just want a really tight first set. I want this match badly. Give me a little. Give me some support." It was. It was really interesting. A, a, a moment on, a, unlike anything I've ever seen. Yes, a lot of fist pumping. But he literally yelled out to some of the people it, as the applause was 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 being heard. You know, come on, come on. I mean, he was so revved up. And he couldn't feel it from them. And I do think Mert and, and Sakib, they, they did take him for granted. That's why the 0-2 was so nice 
Well, the 0-1 match with Agassi under the lights and then the 0-2 final, but those matches at the end of his career, and especially the 0-2 Open, they, he finally could feel some fervent support, some recognition that he'd never quite received before, even, even playing against someone as popular as Agassi. So, Steve, do you think uh, what happened, again, three different players I'm going to mention here, uh, Landel, then Sampras and Djokovic, do you think the New York crowd uh, warmed up to them at a different stages of their career? Uh, of course, Pete was far more like than Lendl and Djokovic in New York because he's an American. But compared to Andre and, and, and Pat Rafter, he had those moments, which, you know, Lendl, I don't know if Lendl ever got the due from the New York crowd. Novak, it was good to see he got his due against Medvedev two years ago in the finals. So do you yeah. see some sort of a comparison in these three trajectories? Yeah, there's some parallels. There are. There are all three, you know, three earnest craftsmen, you know, who, who didn't get their due. In, in Djokovic's case, it was always the, the difference. I guess he always was the third fiddle in this iconic trio. And, and it was always hard for him following the footsteps of, of, of Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal. And that was never easy. And then, then you look at, at uh, Lendl, I, I think misunderstood. He, 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 he was never emotive and he didn't play to the crowds. Plus Lendl, he had his issue of being around during the Connors McEnroe era. And they were the fiery dynamic Americans who were always going to get the support of the crowds, just like Djokovic was always going to face crowds against him when he played rap or Roger. And then Pete had the Andre issue that Andre was it, for the it's kind of the reasons we were discussing earlier at the top of this podcast, Agassiz's kind of magnetic presence on the court and, and demonstrative and, and, a showman and more uh, charismatic and Pete just going out and doing his job and not playing to the, the, to the crowd and just trying, trying to be a, a great champion. So I think there are parallels there too, in that, you know, no doubt in my mind that he, he, but Sanders was not going to compromise that and he wasn't going to get, be obsessed with and worried about what the crowd felt about him, but he didn't, he didn't get his due. And, you know, I, 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 I can only imagine what it's like to be in their shoes at times like that. I mean, in the case of Djokovic, for instance, playing better in the 2015 uh, U.S. Open final, and it might as well have been a Davis Cup match in Switzerland because I think all but four spectators, and one of then that would include Novak's wife and trainer, were, were fervently cheering on Roger. And Pete was different. There was always a reverence. There was always an enormous respect. But they took too much of what his case Mert, do you agree with this? I just feel like because he made the game look easy and Roger didn't suffer for some reason on this because Roger was another who made things seem so effortless. It seemed so effortless for him. But because Pete did things so smoothly and efficiently and he was such a great clinician, they, they just took it for granted. Uh, they didn't see him as, as human. And, and, and they didn't, so to me, they, maybe they didn't fully appreciate the wide array of skills he brought to the court. Yes, and uh, and also the one I agree with you. And the one difference, the one small difference between him and Roger, I'd say, uh, Roger is a little bit craftier in the sense that he's able to build up points with more variety of strokes and longer points on 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 clay. Also, whereas Sampras was more of a let's get it done, get, go out there, serve, get, rally a couple of times. If you get the short ball, slice and come in, or hit the big forehand and win the point. And he was he was he was more efficient. Uh, in in that sense, whereas Roger, perhaps when you watch a Rogers Rogers match, he there are more 
seven to eight big highlight points versus Pete playing a match. He might have two or three highlight points. But for people who like the nuances of the game, I personally enjoyed watching him hit one ace after another because guess what? One ace had a flat to the tee. Then he could hit yeah. the next one, a second serve kick to the outside. Then yeah. he, would, he could hit the next one, a slice serve to the outside on the forehand and then come back with a flat ball into the body. You know, that. but but some people may watch that and say, oh my gosh, I just watched the guy serve five times and there we go. The game is, you know, so uh, it, 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 it depends on how you watch it. Yeah, no, I, I think it's fair. It's also the changing face of the game, too, Mert. Don't you think? I mean, Roger you know, served in volley, attacked 109 times when he played Pete at the 2001 Wimbledon. Then he changed and he became more comfortable with serving and staying back and having that one-two punch of a, of a deadly serve down the tee, setting up a, a forehand winner. And there were times, and, and then today's game, though, Mert, in Federer's era, it, it, the way it all evolved, it was much more baseline tennis, and he picked and chose when he would attack. So, yes, it's true that people got to see more at certain times, but I think even when Pete was showing off his shot-making skills, like the running forehand that you said was the best you've ever seen, I'm totally in accord on that, somehow the fans, I just felt like until the end, I think it changed at the end. They they knew he might not be around much longer. They certainly knew that by the time they played Andre and Pete played the 0-1 quarterfinal under the lights and gave the fans gave them a standing ovation as before they started the four set tiebreak and then certainly that 0-2 final. Then there was the, then there was the sense of okay, I wonder whether we we may not ever see this again. And suddenly they looked at it a little bit differently. But I thought that was that was unfortunate. Plus. The other factor, Roger is just, there's just never been anybody like that who, who everywhere he went at any stage of his career, whether it was 03 or 08 or, or at the very end of the 19 Wimbledon final, the crowds were just always with him. Whether it was Wimbledon, the Open, Roland Garros, didn't matter where he went. He was the most popular player I've ever seen, man or woman. I mean, I can, I can only remember two or three matches where the crowd went against him. One was the Olympic final against Andy Murray, and one was 2005, the Federer-Agassi final at the U.S. Open. There, there, the crowd was clearly for Agassi. I mean, oh, I remember yes. them cheering loudly when Roger double-faulted at a crucial yeah. point in the third set, and the yeah. crowd just going berserk for, for, for Agassi. So it was, it is, it's funny that it's 10 years before that 2015 final that you mentioned, where it's the other way around, you know, people yeah. just going going berserk no, for, right. uh, for Federer. That was, that was 35-year-old Andre Agassi, the yes. American hero or anti-hero, yes. whatever you want to call him. So the circumstances. But that's very huge. rare, you know. And I, then I, Murray. I have to search. And then Murray <laughs> playing the Olympic final and the center court of Wimbledon, of course, they yes. had to go for Andy. But you're right, those are rare occurrences. Very. But if I may add, the 2005 final, if you go back in time, like if today was day after the U.S. Open final. It wasn't an anomaly. That was Federer's second U.S. Open, and Agassi and Roddick were still in the mix. I've always maintained this. The Federer-Nadal legacy also grew because there was no big male American player to root for because such a great history in New York. They always yeah. rooted for their own. So not yeah. that Federer and Nadal are not like, you know, legends in their own right and crowd pleasers, but the American crowd, when I went to the U.S. Open in 2006 and 2007, I had a feeling Federer was the home player then. But in 2005, yeah. I was there in the stands in the bleachers watching the Agassi match. Federer wasn't the home player then because the crowd expected Andy Roddick to be in the weekend. He had been taken out by, I think, Gilles Miller earlier in the weekend. Yeah. But in hindsight, yeah. I would take that match off because he was not as 
I mean, you know, second disagreement with you, Mert, I owe you a lunch, but I think he was not the home player then. But in 2018, U.S. Open quarterfinals against Juan Martin Del Potro, the crowd in the third set became pro Juan Martin. That's something never happened to Roger. That was no, and, and they did they did in the 09 final too. So there were exceptions to the rule. Actually, that yep. was that 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 was a strikingly pro Del Potro crowd in the 09 final. And you, as you say, in 18 too, especially in the fifth set, yeah, fifth set they went wild for Juan Martin. And and I think Roger was he wasn't taken aback. I think he was a bit surprised though, and and it really helped Del Potro capture that title. So, Sakib, you're going to like me now because I'm going to bring it back to the '90s since we're talking about lack of lack of American players. Uh, the, uh, you know, when Roger and Rafa came around, uh, you know, I, I always found find it fascinating that uh, you had two guys, Malavia Washington and Todd Martin, in the in the '90s that American tennis would love to have today. You know, and because the, the, they would be dominating names today. Whereas they're rarely talked about in the 90s because of the Courier, Chang, Agassi, and Sampras wave. And, uh, you know, the, whereas these guys were fantastic players. They didn't win a major, but they were fantastic players. They reached the finals of majors. But, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, those those two guys were great to watch. Yes, and, and of course, they, they still like to joke with each other, Mert, about the semifinal that Mal played against Todd yes. at Wimbledon 96 because Todd had him 5-1 in the fifth and, Mal came back and beat him, and and that was a big moment because that could have been a third, that could have been another major final. Todd lost to Pete in the '94 Australian final and to Andre in the '99 U.S. That was, you're right, they were two honorable individuals, and I, I felt sorry for Todd Mert because he went up two sets to one against Agassi in that '99 Open final, and Andre managed, and Andre deservedly came back to beat him, but. Todd gave himself a chance, one set away. That's true. From major. While against Pete, he lost in straight in the 94 mm-hmm. final. And Mal got to that Wimbledon final, was crushed by Krychek. But uh, yes, you're right. They, they're two people well worth mentioning. I, I think a great point of discussion would be which one was Todd Martin's bigger chance. It's true that he was playing Agassi and uh, he was up two sets to one. But at the same time, he's up 5-1 against Malvia Washington and uh, if he wins that, he plays against Krychek, who perhaps is the only one-shot wonder of the 90s, you know, in, in terms of major titles. So I thought Todd Martin would have had a great chance to win there. And Todd Martin, actually, uh, many times I've heard him in, 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 in the interviews admit, say that the way I define cho- choking, I choked that day, you know. So um, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, it, it, there's no doubt that it would have been almost a coin flip if Martin had played Krychek and now no question that that R- R- Krychek was much happier playing Mal because Mal was going to stay back. He was going to let Richard play. It was going to be a more comfortable encounter. But yes, Todd would have had, I think it was almost a 50-50 going in. And uh, yeah, you're right. And and. And it, it, you have to believe that was weighing on his mind because he knew that Pete was out, out of the tournament and he knew, who, you know, it, it, it had to have been a factor as that match was slipping away against Mal. And big servers never like playing against fellow big servers because you're like, no, you, no. you said the Goran Pete example. I think Krychek and Goran had matches where they didn't like because they were doing to each other what they did to the rest. And that kind of becomes unsettling. So this sets yeah, perfect... and, and, Pete, and Pete had a tough time with Krychek. Krychek eventually came, actually won six of the ten times he played Pete. That was not a one of his favorite matchups. So yes, you're right. Big servers versus big servers. It can be uncomfortable, and 
And uh, I, I, but I, to get back to Mert's point, that was probably oddly, although it was a semi and not a final and Todd was in two finals, but that Wimbledon 96 was maybe was going to be a golden opportunity if he could take it. And I felt sorry for him because frankly, all due, no, all, all due respect to Mal, I think Todd was the better player, certainly on a grass court. And, and it would, would have been, I, I he would have been formidable that. in that final. And let's not forget the day after, maybe the same day when Sampras lost to Krejcik, Jason Stoltenberg beat Goran Ivanisevic because I was a Goran fan and I was hoping, okay, here you go, you win this thing now. And then he loses Stoltenberg. And it, it was like Krejcik, Stoltenberg, Washington, and Martin, what? And the tournament started with a resurgent Becker who had won in Australia. Pete was a three-time defending champion and Richard yeah. Krejcik. So these were the names in Goran Ivanisevic and we get a very different lineup. So uh, that Mark. was the one anomaly anomaly final of the 90s. I thought, you know, one one special thing about the 90s is almost every major winner backed it up. You know, they won their the majors, but they also backed up their title right. by right. their careers, by what they accomplished in their careers. And um, and uh, I thought that that was one final where, but with, with all due respect to both guys, Krajicek and Matt Malavia Washington, but th- 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 that must have been the highlight of their career by far. You know, with, Absolutely. By, by, by a large scale. So we cover a lot of ground, as expected. Decade belongs to Sampras. There's no disagreement. We may touch upon Sampras again. I have some questions, but Mert, we need to bring in Sergei Bruguera and Thomas Muster because across the pond at the Roland Garros, the most dominant players in the world, Sampras, Agassi, Becker, Edberg, they were just not doing anything of significance. Of course, Agassi made a couple of finals, doesn't win this thing till 99, towards the end of the decade. But let's talk about Sergei Bruguera. And this is the era where clay court players were clay court specialists and the best players were winning Wimbledon and US Open. This goes back to the Rafa Nadal Borg question we had in the 80s podcast. So fire away with Sergey Bruguera, his forehand, his rise to those two titles. What kind of a player he was for a young listener who's just seen his no- name in the Wikipedia list of who's who of tennis, but really doesn't know what this guy was doing in, day in, day yeah. out. Yeah, well, you know, he um, Bruguera had brutal ground strokes. His forehand was 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 fantastic, and for a tall guy, he was super fast. And uh, you know, we were talking about Carrier. You know, he could never catch the. Uh, I thought the best chance of Carrier keeping it keeping up was at the French. You know, at the time, you know, even though he he kind of you know slid off quickly in the rankings, that if he wanted to still capture ma- big titles, that the French would have been his best shot. But yeah, just Mert, like we Mert, talked to Bert, so uh, not to interrupt you, but yeah, you you you're you're talking about the man who who made life miserable for Jim two years in a row at Roland Garros. Yes, yes, exactly. And, uh, and you know, then, then you know, just like we said, okay, Sampras got organized and, and et cetera, and Agassi, you know, evolved his game and, and, and added uh, to his game. Now Carrier all of a sudden faced Bruguera, followed by Muster, and later Gustavo Quartin. And those three guys on clay courts are really unbe- unbeatable. I mean, you know, we, prior to Rafa, I can't think of any more dominating players than those three guys on clay at their peak. And, uh, and of course, putting Borg aside, I'm talking about, you know, 1990s. And uh, Juan Carlos Ferrero. But, 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 I would Sorry, not put Juan Carlos Ferrero in the same, in the same slot as Gustavo Quartin, Thomas Muster, or, uh, no, I wouldn't or either. Or I would That's just it. my opinion, you know. But just to get back to Sergi for a second, because that's where we started, Saqib. I, I think back on that period. Okay, he beats Courier in a five-set final 
to win the title in 93. And I believe a breakdown at the start of the fifth set. And then he comes back and beats Courier in the semis the next year and beats Barisatigi in the final. He defended the French Open title. Now, thus far, he has not made it into the International Tennis Hall of Fame, which has frankly surprised me. I consider that one of the great feats that even if somebody has a limited record elsewhere to defend the French Open title, all right, unless your name is Nadal, I understand that there are freaks of nature like Rafa, but the fact, be, the fact is it's a very tough title to defend. And I, I think it was a phenomenal achievement because he had to, Courier may have been not, the Courier wasn't maybe as great as he had been in 91 and two, but certainly in 93, I mean, he was in the midst of a three slam finals in a row stretch and he had just come off winning the Australian at the start of that year and Sergi fended him off and then he beat him soundly in the semis the next year. So those were not easy titles to come by. So I think Sergi should, he, I agree. I don't put him up there, Mert, with Kerton or Mooster. Not quite, but I still think it was a phenomenal achievement to defend that French. Yes. And, you know, he came back and I think played one more French Open final in the 90s. He did. Against 97. 96 or, yeah, against Guga. Yeah, he lost to Guga in 97. Yeah, right. the first one. And Guga, of course, was 66 in the world coming in that year. Yeah. So that was... Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I just thought that was that was a, that was a wonderful kind of major tournament uh, breakthrough, and 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 of course he became one of the most popular players we've seen at Roland Garros. Added a couple of titles later, and the fans grew to really love him. Mert. I mean, here was a guy who mixed showmanship with competitiveness as well as anybody I've seen, because yeah. he loved the crowds, but he knew how to compete. Absolutely. Just just to add one last thing to 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 Bruguera. Bruguera, by the way, was a very confident player too. He, uh, you know, he. I listened to his interview back then, and he yeah. believed that he could beat anybody that he was facing on clay. But uh, the, to to talk about uh, just to mention something you said earlier, Saki, that's true. You know, these guys like Bruguera and Mooster, they they even passed that on Wimbledon. Some some years they didn't even they didn't even play. They just passed on the grass court season period. But uh, but okay, so. Uh, getting back to Guga's 1997 title, uh, I would uh, I would agree with Steve. I think done the the Sampras's run in his first U.S. Open title and Guga's 1997 run at the French Open are the two most Im- improbable runs. And the, if you wanted to make a long movie of uh, of a player winning a title day to day and make make it a good tennis documentary, th- those two should be should be right up there. I mean, Guga's 1997 title is amazing. This guy didn't didn't even reach, if I'm if I'm correct, if memory serves, he didn't even reach the semifinals of an AT of any ATP tour uh, yeah. level event until yeah. then. And I believe it, I, if I watched a, a 20 minute documentary on him called Oguga, and I believe he lost in the first round of Hamburg to Richard Fromberg, and he gets mad and leaves to go back to Brazil, and and there he decides to play a, a challenger and wins it. And then flies back to play the French Open, and then and then he beat some incredible players. I mean, I think he beat Kafelnikov and Muster. Yes, he, he did. In, he beat Muster in the bull ring court, court yeah. number one, thriller, yeah. five set thriller, coming back oh, yeah. from three love down in the fifth. Oh, and, yeah. uh, and and you know that it was an incredible run. And and this is when you know the famous chant "Guga Guga" came about. And you know then he draws the big circle at the uh, at Roland Garros yeah. on, on, on yeah. clay after wins a title. And I would totally agree with Steve. He's one of the most beloved characters for for the for French Open crowd for sure. But now you know he he came out with a book, and now that people have 
some people who look at the history of the game and listen to some of his interviews, he's great to listen to. I mean, you can listen to Gustavo talk about his memories of those titles for hours and hours. And he's one of the most beloved characters in tennis in the open era. I would, I would put it, I mean, I don't, I can't think of one person who dislikes uh, Gustavo Quartin. Yes. And I haven't spent a little time with him behind the scenes in a few of these places. He, he, he's, he's such a beguiling person and, and he's unlike any of the other champions I've ever met. I mean, he doesn't take himself that seriously. He loves to laugh and he, and he still, there's a sort of a sense of wonderment about it all. Really a great guy. And, and, and I, and, and so what the crowd saw in public is what I, I saw myself in the limited times I've been around him in private, just a terrific person. And Murd, I'll go back, if I may go back, and and you're right, Juan Carlos Ferrero is maybe a notch below these guys, but we also have to factor in that his career was never the same after the bout of chickenpox. I think if you look at up to French Open 2003, if someone had told me that day that this guy will never win a French Open again, I would have laughed at their face because I think he had that you know forehand and the footwork. I think he could have won at least one more Roland Garros, if not two, of course, then Rafa Nadal came and everyone's history changed forever, but I think we have he's he's like the forgotten anecdote of french tennis i think he was to me he was superior than moya even though their careers are like quite identical i would agree with that he had I a lot of weapons his his mosquito like foot speed and the forehand were like phenomenal especially when he beat hewitt and agassi in the 2003 us open but again we are going yeah. ahead ahead but, but i would i would i would counter argue with that that if if we're going to mention the chicken pox then we also have to mention sergey bruguera having brutal knee surgery uh, when he was still at the top of his game, and and Gustavo Quartin going through a hip surgery when he was when he also could have been at the top of his game for a few yeah. years. I mean, the, you know, those guys' careers were sh- were cut short. Also, no, yeah, yeah they were they were more Roland Garros anyway. So I think Juan Carlos Ferrero just only won one. I think that's that was my point. I was not saying he's better than them. I thought yeah. he believe belongs in the same conversation if you look at their respective peaks. So sorry, Steve, I cut you off. No, in I get. Fact, I think fact, you're right. I, I think that's a fair point. But I can we. I wouldn't mind if we. I think we should spend a little time on more time on Mooster. Oh, he's coming. Oh, he's the next one. Yeah. He, uh, well, go ahead. So, Sorry, Steve. I don't want to step on your. Go right, ahead. So I don't know. I mean, uh, Steve, he had a very special rivalry with Andre Agassi. There was no love lost. Ninety-six and ninety-four quarters. The box is chirping. He comes in the press conference, says a lot of funny things. I don't care. And then he also had a famous anecdote on Agassi when Agassi plummeted all the way to 141 and then he became number one I think in 98 or whenever so they asked him and he said something which is one of my favorite lines of all time he said but I'm not surprised he's going to hit tennis balls he's not going to study medicine and become a doctor so you know he's going to be number one you know because he put in the time so again Musta was the European player that Americans didn't it seemed from far didn't warm up to so what is your recollection of Thomas Musta in the U.S. Open and these summer tournaments you followed him yeah, well, I, I, I have to say my sharper recollections of just following his incredible success on clay across the years and particularly winning it in 95 at Roland Garros and knocking out Chang in the final. And I saw him play some great tennis at the Open and also saw him get to the semis of the Australian losing to Sampras in 97. So it wasn't as if he couldn't play great on hard courts, but he struck me. He was he was yes, really strong lefty with a heavy forehand. It, it almost Mert, it, I don't I don't think it's necessarily dead on target to say this, but a poor man's Nadal. I mean, he was really no fun at all. He could bully you around that court. 
and and the leftiness was so effective and he was a tough competitor and his game was made for clay and in fact what i remember sakib the most is that there was this controversy he got to number one controversy in the sense that a lot of people weren't happy that it was like a, a almost entirely a clay court ledger uh, which is not his fault. I mean, uh, you know, if you can get the kind of results he did on clay and, you know, win, win about 40 titles over the course of the 90s on that service, who can knock you for that? But I, I, the, the, the other qualities you're describing, I don't think that it was just Agassi. I think he kind of got under a lot of players' skin. And, yes. Uh, yes. and I don't know if it was always deliberate. He had just sort of a – he had this kind of quirky personality and maybe sometimes didn't edit himself very well. So he would say things that I'm sure later he probably regretted and made it into the public domain. But the player was, to me, incredibly impressive, the way he could muscle people off that court. What did you think of his game, Mert? Yes, I would, agree, I would agree with what you said, including the, the Rafa Nadal comparison. You know, the one thing that we always praise Rafa for is not only just how he plays points, but how, how he behaves and how he... Um, uh, comports himself in between points. You know, he's he's always ready to play. He he exudes this, uh, I'm ready to play, let's go, let's go. You know, he runs to the side, he runs to the chair. You know, he, the, the, after the flip, the coin toss, right. he runs, sprints right. back. You know, Thomas Muster did all those things. You, you know, the, before Rafa, if we're going to just take that detail, before Rafa, there was Muster. You know, the, yes. the, the, doing all, yeah. I mean, he ran to the court, he ran to the court, he, gave, he, he walked fast for the next point. He just looked like a, like a you know a racehorse ready to go after every point. So yeah, I, w- I would agree with you, Steve, on that comparison. And I Mer- run, there's I another run, uh... another quick point. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt you before I forget this, and you go back to what you're saying. But we all have to remember that in '89 he had that freak accident outside on uh, going out to dinner in Miami. He'd, he'd reached the finals and then he couldn't play it. Had a default because somebody smacked his car into him and his knee and surgery and. A lesser man than Mooster wouldn't have been the force he was in the 90s. I mean, it took a lot to come back from this freakish injury sure. that he had. And I think that also said a lot about his competitive character. So, sorry, but, but, I just wanted to wasn't throw he that hitting, Wasn't he hitting yeah. balls in a wheelchair? Well, you know. Yes. There's a clip of him hitting balls and he practicing forehand yeah, in a wheelchair right. with his right. leg up. But, yeah. uh, but what, one thing that I would add... Um, uh, for by the way, uh, speaking of you know, he lost in the finals of Miami there because well he yeah. couldn't play, but right. uh, didn't he, didn't he come back later in his career and and win a big hardcore title, beating Bruguera in the finals? In fact, or am yes. I wrong on this? No, I think that's right. I think that's right. He was an underrated hardcore. Yeah. no doubt about it. I mean, it, 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 he was top of the line on clay, but he became yeah. much much more uh, but, proficient on on the hard. Yes. Yeah. No, Mert, you are right. He absolutely. You're right. He won '97 Miami. There. There you go. Yeah. Yes. There it is. Yeah, was, that was the one. Which, right. which is which was crazy. You know, we would. I. I didn't. I, you know, it was. A, it was a. It was an incredible first set. The first set of that match is is off the. You know, these two clay court specialists play, pre- proving that they can actually play on a hard too. But and he had, one, and, and he had started that year by getting to the to the uh, semis of the Australian and losing to San. That's right. That's right. He, he, that's was, he was believing in his hardcore game at that stage. That's correct. He um one small memory of Muster that I have. This was in the, the, there was a competition in the eighties called the Winter Cup or Balkani Winter Cup, but it was just the Balkani countries, you know, Greece and back then Yugoslavia and Romania, Bulgaria, Turkey. We we had this uh, Winter Cup uh, and uh, and uh, but then uh, 
I think the tournament expanded to include all your all Europeans. So it was called the Winter Cup. It was only under, I believe, you had to be eighteen and under to play, or seventeen and under to play. Anyway, Muster Austria happened to be in the same group as us, as Turkey, and uh, in, in in Turkey happened to host that one year, and in the one single indoor court in the whole country, by the way, that was hosted. And uh, it was Italy. Italy had Claudio Pistolesi, who became a respectable uh, player later in his career. And uh, there was Thomas Muster on the, on, the, on the Austrian team. He was 15 years old, I believe, 15 and a half. And it was cold, you know, in, in, the, in the winter. It was super cold. It, it was played in November. And we remember, because it was just one court and you couldn't practice a lot other than play the matches, we remember the team... We we arrived to the club at 7.30 or 8 to practice, and the, the, the guy at the door would tell us, there's this crazy blonde, you know, player from one of the teams who came here at 6 o'clock in the morning, and, uh, and when it was still dark, and he, walk, and he apparently walk, would walk to the, to the indoor court and would do sprints for 30 minutes on the court, various sprints. Without a, he came by himself. You know, the hotel was right across the street, and this is how Muster was. No, I mean, who would do that at 15 years old? You know, yeah, the, the, yeah. who would have that discipline to do that at 15 years old? But yeah. That, yeah, that was him. So let me ask you both the same question. Mert, you can go first. When you look at Muster's impeccable record, right? He won 39 titles in the 90s, only second to Sampras. He won three titles more than Agassi. Of course, Agassi is the second best player of the decade. He won more majors. But do you guys think Muster should have won more French Opens? And I have a sub-layer to this question. I find him, even by clay standards, little one-dimensional because his losses on clay have been to the likes of Michael Steek, Pat Rafter. You would not expect Juan Carlos Ferreira or Sergei Bruguera, forget Rafa Nadal, you would not expect any seasoned clay coders to lose to these guys on clay. So, Steve, Murray, yes. you can fire first. That's I mean. a well, good you go, you go. No, I'll go. I'll go very short. I completely agree with this. Uh, that, that loss to Michael Steek was shocker. For me, I thought I thought he was going to win the French again for sure. You know that that, that year, and he didn't. And also, his slide off. You know, once uh, past nineteen ninety seven was very quick. So uh, his his peak lasted very very short time. And uh, after, uh, well, of course, you know, discounting the fact that he had a major accident and he needed a few yeah. years to get back. But once he won that French Open in, in nineteen ninety five, and that summer he beat. Almost every player that you can think of in the in, in the in the build-up tournaments. I think Albert Costa was the only one he lost to in the Kitzbühel tournament. I think, but anyway, I I thought he would dominate 1996, 1997. You know the 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 clay court seasons, but he didn't. And uh, you know th- that loss to Rafter is also um, uh, uh, quite mind blowing. But I find the one against Stich to be more uh, more of a shocker. So yes, I agree with you. He should have won more titles. He should have won more uh, French Opens. Yeah, I think it showed about to lose to those two showed a vulnerability. I mean, you wouldn't expect that he could, you would expect that he could have counterattacked to beat those guys, that he would have made the passing shots when he needed them, that he would have been better from the baseline than Steak, that, that Rafter would not have been able to get in on him as much and as effectively as he did. So I was surprised by that. And I agree with Mert that I, I expected a few more years to have him go toward the end of the, right through 98, 99, at least at top level. It didn't happen. On the other hand, he was so prolific earlier in the decade, and he won at least three Italian Opens. And he, his record was phenomenal, which, which, which gets back to your points, Akib, that you see all the titles that he won. Yeah, I would say we should have been looking at a two- or three-time French Open champion, but there were an awful lot of really great 
players that won the French in that span, you know, uh, in the 90s. And you wouldn't have thought Kafelnikov could do it in 96. But he, but Yevgeny was a great clay court player himself and worthy of the honor. And he took advantage of Mooster being gone. And and he is the one who beat Steak in the final that year. But I do think that were, that was a great clay court era between Courier at the start of the decade, you know, w- winning his two in a row and Sergi winning his two in a row and, and, and Kerton coming along later. And he's another one that toppled Mooster. So there were reasons, but he, I'm sure he looks back and thinks he should have had it minimum two and probably three at Roland Garros. Yes. And, and also again, by the, by the way, his loss against Quentin was a shocker too. Now it's not, you know, in retrospect, we, yeah. we don't see that as a shocking loss, but yeah. at the time when he lost that match, being, especially being up three love in the fifth after yeah. winning the fourth, nobody thought, I mean, nobody thought that he would lose that match. So I would, I would call three shocking losses really in a row for, for Mooster at the French Open, considering the, the context. He should have never won the 95 Monte Carlo. That's another discussion for <laughs> another podcast. <laughs> uh, so again, but Steve touched upon something very important, which is a conversation that doesn't really die uh, if you look at 90s and 2000s before the rise of Rafa Nadal. So Mert, I'm sure you have a lot to say to this. And there's no right or wrong answer. But, you know, my question on the 80s podcast, what Borg couldn't do, but Rafa did, for the Roland Garros champions' respect across the pond in the United States. So this is that era, the sandwich in between, because you have the Sampras and the Beckers and the Agassiz who are like dominant superstars. And by the way, some people would believe where I was coming from, indoor tennis was seen as more attractive than Roland Garros for some, because the Becker and Sampras final was a lock. And the, here you have the likes of Muster and Kafelnikov. Actually, Kafelnikov was seen as an all-round player, but Muster and Bruguera and Moya is winning the the Roland Garros title and I stand corrected because these guys deserve immense respect so larger question is because of who won Roland Garros did it diminish Mert because I know you never thought it diminished Roland Garros but do you do you see this argument does it even make sense because the superstars were failing to win Roland Garros and the guys who were winning are not your household names like Musta become a number one is a class example Agassi didn't take kindly to it he even mocked him somewhere I wish I could find the anecdote but he did. So, what's your take on this larger? You know, yeah, I, uh, I would, I would, I would refer back to our conversation back uh, when we had this uh, similar conversation about the eighties uh, in Europe. Regardless of uh, of of the names that you mentioned, I would say that French Open always remained the central part of the of the season. And all, the, in fact, Sergei Bruguera, uh, the winners of the French Open. You talked to Bruguera, Muster, and Gustavo Quartin. You know, they all they they'll tell you immediately. They grew up dreaming of winning Roland Garros, not Wimbledon, not U.S. Open, but winning Roland Garros. So it it, it depended on where you grew up, and uh, and where you were, and uh, so I would say that uh, maybe in the in the American narrative, uh, it might have diminished French Open, but French Open never really had a great uh, position in the American narrative to begin with. But I would say that uh, I would say that no. The answer to to that question would be no, because in fact I would say that the '90s French Open winners was a tougher uh, tougher era than the '80s. Even when Borg won French Open, he didn't have to face this great uh, clay court specialist group as as Courier. Okay, Courier is not a clay court specialist, but he was tremendous on clay courts. So Courier followed by you know Steve just went through them. You know Courier. 
uh, Bruguera, Gustavo Quartin, Tomas Muster, even Carlos Moya. That's the it, 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 even today. I would say Rafa Rafa's accomplishment is maybe the best in the world of tennis. One that we may never see again, winning so many French Opens. But uh, but that group of players in the nineties on clay courts were tough as nails. Steve, Boy, I couldn't I couldn't disagree with a word you said. It's beautifully summed up, Mert. I would just add one thing. When it came to the American perception of the French Open, I think by the 90s, there was a greater appreciation. I mean, television, the television coverage had grown immeasurably. And uh, you know, back in the 70s, we know you'd have NBC covering the two finals on tape. It changed a lot over the course of the 80s, but especially in the 90s. And so they could now sort of see the tournament wall to wall and I do think, Mert, that, that that helped. That helped in terms of American sports fans and certainly American tennis fans understanding the stature of Roland Garros as the premier, the clay court capital of the world and, mm. you know, the greatest clay court test. So I, I, I was happy about that to see. And Courier and Agassi playing the finals or winning French Open that also helped. Also helped yeah. Too, yeah. yeah, to have two Americans, that was terrific with Jimmy Connors in the, in the booth. I still remember Courier. An odd, playful moment, you know, leaning over and, and saying something to Connors. He saw the microphone on the court. Might have even been in the warm-up. And he said something about, oh, hey, Jimmy. He, you know, they actually used it on the air. But I think that's right. Courier and Agassi and the fact that then later in the decade, Agassi finally got his title and Jim got his two early in the decade. And Michael had won it in 89. So the American success there between 89 and 99 also helped considerably. So there's another guy, you know, who belongs in this generation and is one of the most polarizing figures, Marcelo Rios. His ascendance to the top ranking had the tennis world divided. Then he was like literally a rebel in his own right and, you know, wasn't very popular with some fan bases. So, Bert, I asked you about John McEnroe and what does talent mean? So same question for this podcast. What does talent mean when you look at Marcelo Rios? Is he one of the most talented players you've ever seen? Yes, he is one of the most talented players I've seen. He, uh, again, you know, when we're talking about uh, talent, I guess everyone has a different definition, but I'm looking at uh, how many wow points can one play? How many outrageous shots can one pull from incredible positions? How much wrist they can use when, they're, when their arms are fully stretched to hit a shot that nobody else would dream of even trying. And Marcelo Rios could do all of those things. I mean, some of, some of the baseline uh, he, he, his shots were not very orthodox. You know, he looked weird in, in some of them. He, he could hit a very flat backhand, but he could also topspin it. But then he could also hit this weird inside out slice with a full arm swing. But he would make those shots. You know, those are the kind of shots that other people play hit when they just play around in, in practice. Uh, he would hit those in in matches and 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 make them. And uh, but but on but uh, unfortunately, his discipline whether you want to call it mental discipline, physical discipline, or general professionalism discipline, was uh, was not up to par with the, with the other names that I mentioned. And then, therefore, you know, he uh, he doesn't have a major, which is which is quite frankly surprising. You know, why? Because if you watched him one match, if you didn't know who he was, and you made every best player of the '90s, you made someone watch every best player of the '90s one match they would think for sure this guy must have won a major title among the, among these, but, but he didn't. And um, yeah, but it was fascinating to watch. Steve. 
he he had such great feel, Mert. I mean, you kind of got to it when you're the way you you covered the spectrum of his game. But I, I love the feel. And that's why you mentioned the, the number of things he could do with his backhand. I thought he felt the ball really well up his forehand. He didn't have a great serve, but he moved it around well. He had a great feel for match play also, how to win points, how to construct them. And, and it was all a lot of en- ingenuity and creativity. Yeah, I think that Mert was maybe too kind. I think it was a, not a total lack, lack of discipline, but certainly lack of discipline. He was nowhere near those other guys in that department. And, uh, you know, he, he got in his own way too often with his disposition and his attitude and his defensiveness. And that's too bad because you think of a performance like when he just destroyed Agassi in the Miami final and he got himself to number one and he was in the Australian final, which unfortunately got crushed by Corda. There were times when you when you watched him when you couldn't believe that things were not going to break his way sometime, somewhere at a major, and it didn't happen. But I, I blame him for that. I don't think he pointed toward the majors, Murd. I think he just – he probably treated a lot of these tournaments pretty much the same, and it wasn't an accident that he got to the top, but maybe it also wasn't an accident that he didn't secure a Grand Slam title. And just like I David Nalbandian, he was injured a lot. I saw a lot of Rio's matches to end with injuries, retirements, or yeah, you know, comp- yeah. compromised but fitness. That, that also, I mean, that may also be a part of, uh, you know, Not that training. may also, yeah, yeah, you know. So. so again, we'll wrap this up in 10, 15 minutes because there's a lot of ground covered. So I want to ask Sakeem, now, Roger. Sakeem, can I just, before you get to the next one, because I'm going to forget it and you have to forgive me for interrupting. Just want to say something briefly about Kafelnikov. Because we touched on him briefly, but sure. I thought Yevgeny was a great all-surface player. Uh, you know, he won his his uh, maiden major at, at Roland Garros in '96. Took the Australian a few years later. Always a factor in the year-end championships. He could play on anything. And there were five out of the last six years of the '90s where he played more matches than anybody else. He was averaging about 150 singles and doubles matches per year which is astounding when you look back. He's also the last player to win the singles and doubles at a major when he, because he also took the doubles at Roland Garros in 96, last man. And so I, I have to say, I think he was pretty commendable in his way. He was, he was another great professional. He trained hard, and I suspect that the doubles was part of his training, but he enjoyed doubles, and he, it, it, he returned well, and he was a very competent volleyer. And I, I look back on that stat of, so there were a couple of years where he played 171 combined matches in singles and doubles. And so you have I, to remember, you have I, to remember those were, you know, that's when a lot of the tournament finals were best of five sets, even some yeah. doubles were best of, so he must have played more best of five set matches during yeah. that stretch than anyone else, you know? Yeah, but I'm just saying, I, I also want, the other reason, other thing I want to say about him, Saqib, is that I also just think he's one of the smoothest in his own way, quite an elegant player. He was a pretty big guy, but he moved nicely, and he, he the stroke production was so sound. It was a pleasure to watch him play the game for to, for for me at least. Did you feel that way, Mert? I really enjoyed no, it. No, you summarized it very nicely. And you know, he had a he had almost a classic forehand grip. You know, there was a little bit of a throwback in the, from the from the earlier times, but yeah. he could drive it. He could top spin it. He could. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's you're right. He was a pleasure to watch. And I, I would throw an anecdote. When in 99, Australian Open, either Sampras lost or didn't play, I don't remember. But Kefelnikov said it's his tournament to lose, and he backed it up by beating Rios. That was, And he was also known to be a loudmouth. He did the same thing in 96 when Philippoussis had beaten Sampras, but then he was 
owned by Becker in the quarters, but he didn't learn from that. But and he actually wins the '99 Australian Open when there's no Sampras in the draw. So I think yeah, he was, he was right. definitely a personality in his own right. Yeah, he was. And obviously, you know, he only had the two wins over Pete and they were in a very short span in 96 at the world at, at the team competition prior to the ATP team competition prior to the French and then in that semifinal of the French. So otherwise he was really haunted by he didn't he, he wanted to stay clear of Pete. He didn't like the matchup. But you're right. He felt that Sampras was out of the draw. And you can get into a lot of trouble making those statements. Unfortunately, he backed it up then. And yeah. Uh, I, I I just think I look back on that era and I say we 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 can't leave him out. You no, know, obviously, and my my bad if I was you know not remembering him. No, 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 not at all, not at all. But, but, you know, like there are a lot of matches that stay with your memory. So there's a Kafelnikov Sampras match in the '94 Australian Open. Sampras won that nine seven in the fifth. That was, I think, the signature entry for Kafelnikov in our households. You know, all the tennis fans saw what this guy is capable of. And I think that was like one of the my favorite matches of the '90s because we were witnessing tennis that was that hadn't been seen yet. You know, we've seen that in the Federer Djokovic Nadal era. There's always that odd match that said, "Wow, we haven't seen this before." So that was like one of those matches that always stayed with me. And I may just go and watch the highlights of that match after the recording. So that was a great entry for Kafelnikov. So now the larger questions, right? Sampras is the guy who the decade belongs to, no question about it. So are there any matches? Steve, according to you, that shaped the decade? Are they with history or yes, with the narrative? Yes. few matches you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, the one, one that I think clearly shaped the decade because they were 8-8 eight and eight going into this U.S. Open final in 95. They actually had split 16 career contests head-to-head with Sampras and Agassi. It was the, the critical match, the critical, most pivotal match of the year. And then in the end, ultimately, to me, of the decade. Because if you look back on that season, and Agassi had won the Australian, he went on and beat, he split a couple of matches with Pete in Indian Wells and Miami. He lost in Indian Wells, beat Pete in Miami, and then beat Sampras again in Canada in the finals over the summer. So he'd won three out of four against Sampras. He'd also won four straight tournaments after losing to your favorite player, Saki, Boris Becker, in a startling Wimbledon semifinal. Because Agassi was, 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 up 6-2-4-1, up two breaks in the second set, and Becker managed to turn that match around with Nick Balateri in his corner and then lost to, to a Pete in the final. But Andre had, didn't, after that, didn't lose on the hard courts. Washington, started it off in Washington, and then he went through Canada and Cincinnati, New Haven, and had a 26-match winning streak coming into that open final with Sampras. So he was regarded as the favorite. But Sampras, as he so often did, was priming for the majors. He'd won no tournaments on the hard after Wimbledon. He played okay over the summer, but he didn't win any titles. But the but all along, his attitude was, I, I'm going to leave it all at the U.S. Open. I remember him saying that to me in 95. I wanted to leave it all at the U.S. Open. So it came down to that one big match. They'd been on the cover of the New York Times magazine coming into the tournament. So much interest in them, this great American rivalry, two best players in the world. And when Sampras beat Agassi in that four-set final, and it you know, peaking for the big occasion. I think I think it really kind of ruined Agassi for a couple of years and propelled Pete. The combination of what it did for Sampras's confidence, confidence and what it did to deflate Agassi, I consider that to be the most important match of the decade. Yes, given given that given that context, even outside of that type of context, I, I agree with you, Steve. That because the there's no doubt that Sampras Agassi rivalry was by far the biggest event of the 10-year uh, 
period right. and, uh, and on, in men's tennis. And when you consider that rivalry, I think Australian Open 1995 was the first time, if, if my memory serves, where Agassi beat Sampras in the major stage in a yes. major final, correct? Yes, it was. And, uh, it was. So, so the, and then there's that whole season that follows it, just like Steve described. So coming into that U.S. Open final, had Agassi won that U.S. Open final, then you may have, we may be looking at a different next five or six years than we are looking at now. And, yeah, it was, uh, yes, it was it, critical. It, it, it flipped, uh, it flipped the, the pendulum totally in the, in Sampras' fa uh, favor. So, yes, that is the most important match of the decade. You know, I, of course, from a you know, coach standpoint, I'm, 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 I'm going to keep mentioning that 1991 Curry-Ragasi final because of right. the, the arrival of power tennis. You know, I thought 1990 Sampras uh, winning the U.S. Open is one of the best stories. Gustavo Quartin winning 1997 French Open, one of the best stories. But in terms of uh, the match of the decade, yes, I'm on Steve's camp there for completely. And you look back, Mert and, and Sakib, and you see, I mean, okay, they were dead even in their rivalry at that time. They finished, Sampras won, 20, won the series 20 to 14. And then you look at what happened after the 95 final. He'd already beaten Andre in the 90 U.S. Open final, lost to him in Australia, as you mentioned, Mert, wins this U.S. Open final in 95, then beats Andre in the 99 Wimbledon final in straight sets, beats him in the U.S. Open quarterfinal at uh, in their most epic contest in many ways in, in, in 2001. And then in that last match of Sampras's career, the 2002 final. So I think that... It, and in were, that, Steve, sorry were, to interrupt, in that stretch, I think Sampras also beat Agassi on clay in Houston. Red clay, did. straight Earlier sets, correct? Yeah, yeah, he beat him in, in, in 02 in the semifinals in straight sets on the clay. That's true. Yeah. And, and that was the, the last time they had played leading up to that that night that that u.s open final and yes that was impressive that he did it on the clay American that's how that's how lopsided the rivalry got after that, after Agassi, that time i guess he got him in australia in 2000 i think or 2001 semis in five which sampras faded in the fifth set i think six, one yeah. Or six two yeah yeah that's right 2000 exactly uh that was that was one of their best matches actually because sampras had gone up two sets to one and they went to a four set tie break and agassi was serving down four or five uh, in the tie break. So Sampras was two points away and Agassi took the tie break and then romped in the fifth set. It was a very high quality match. Uh, but again, uh, but again, it was a semifinal. It wasn't a final. So Sampras in the end won four of their five major finals. So that that's uh, significant. And again, a generic question, who was a breakout star or, or what was a breakout moment that you didn't see coming? In the 90s, for me, it was clearly I became a huge Patrafter fan, but I didn't see him win the 97 US Open. It was Chang's tournament to win. You know, Korda beats Sampras. Agassi is not the same guy. Rafter beats him, but I, I thought Chang's going to win the US Open. And Rafter just, you know, never looked back. He became a pretty much a top 10 player who reached number one, played two Wimbledon finals. So how do you guys about popular see beloved players, right? Yeah. How do you see that moment? I, I think that was that was a shattering loss for Chang Saki. But you you summed it, you 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 set it up beautifully because yes, Michael knew that Pete was going. They all knew Pete had lost at Corda. Corda then kind of retired against Bjork, Jonas Bjorkman, and there's Michael, and he feels like okay, I've been through a lot of hardship here. He'd lost to Pete in the finals in, in the year before, and and this was going to be his moment. And Rafter just served and volleyed him off the court. It's one of the best performances I've ever seen, Mert, from Patrick Rafter. Poor Michael never had a chance. And then he, 
Raptor goes on and beats Ruzetsky in the final. And then, of course, comes back the next year and defends his crown, uh, beating Sampras in that semifinal that we mentioned and also the Mark Philippouses in the final. So the only thing I would say about Rafter is that I thought it was a shame, Mert, given the great serve and volley craftsmanship that he always displayed, that he would lose one Wimbledon final to Sampras in 2000 in, in, in four sets, but had a great chance. He had to go up two sets to love and Sampras came back and, and made a great recovery in the second set tie break and, and beat Rafter in four. And then the next year he loses to even Isovich. So, we're getting past the 90s here, but I'm saying I, it's a shame to me that to go along Saqib with the two U.S. Open titles in 97 and 98, that he couldn't, a little bit similar to Roddick later on, not being able to add the Wimbledon title to his U.S. Open title, which would I think would have been a worthy prize for him. That Patrick, with especially though, given his game, given his serve and volley skills, supreme skills, I thought, uh, it was too bad that he, that he couldn't have done. Now, maybe Mert, do you think, Mert, that the, that the kick serve, the high-bounding kick serve on the hard made him better on hard than he was on grass, despite the fact that he was in two Wimbledon finals? Um, hard to say, Steve, because, you know, he, yeah. did, beat, he did beat Agassi twice at oh, Wimbledon in the semis at fantastic semifinal matches. And, oh, yeah. And, and, they both, and they Agassi, both well, both in five sets, exactly. Yeah, and there yeah. were great matches. If I, you know, two matches that I'd recommend to anybody to watch if you serve and volleyer against a great counterpuncher. And Agassi was one of the best at handling these, uh, these high kick serves. Right. And, uh, and I thought, you know, so it's hard to say, you know, if they were not as effective on hard, on, on grass as they were on, on, um, on hard courts, then, you know, beating Agassi twice on Wimbledon. At, at Wimbledon is uh, is very impressive. I, it's it's hard to say. I, I I'm you know going to refrain from an answer on that. Yeah. No, that's but a it's good a very question. very good question. One that I never I never thought. You know, we also have to go back to I think U.S. Open had fairly fast surface back in the nineteen late nineteen nineties. So oh, maybe fast. it was not as big a kick on hard courts as it was say at the Australian Open. So maybe that's still quite impressive that he got those uh, titles in at the U.S. Open. Well, I'm just trying to, you know, it's a good, good answer. I mean, I'm just trying to figure out what might have happened. It's unfortunate for him. I just feel yeah. I thought his game was actually well suited to both surfaces. But no, it's, second, it's, 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 it's unfortunate. Agassi, the second Agassi match, the first time was just a great five setter period. Second year in 01, Agassi was serving for the match at 5-4. He got to 30-15 in that this set. And incredible that Rafter could pull that match out from that, yes. but he did. And then, no, you're, right. and, and, and Steve, also, would you say? I, I think you're 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 make, actually you're making a very uh, interesting point. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna look into that more to, about about the kick because also we have to keep in mind that the build up to the U.S. Open was different than the build up to Wimbledon, and I'm I'm gonna assume that Patrick Rafter, especially into his second title uh, at the U.S. Open, came in with incredible confidence because didn't he just yeah. run through all that? I mean, he didn't he oh, win yeah. every single uh, tournament on hard courts that summer. He was phenomenal that summer in 98. Absolutely. Yeah. He, he really he, believed in himself. He beat Sampras so, in uh, Cincinnati. I think that's when the infamous comment came. Yeah. 10 grand slams. But right. uh, again, if you look at this guy, like I, I call him the Stan Wawrinka of that generation. He was a late bloomer. So let's do this mini exercise. Steve, you can go first. Rafter, overachiever, underachiever? I say slight, slight underachiever. 
Mert? That's why. That's why. Because that's my point about the Wimbledons. I thought he should have had a Wimbledon, uh, one Wimbledon. So I'd go slight underachiever. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm with Steve. Okay, so it's a rapid fire. I didn't plan this, but I trust you both to play along. Michael Steak, underachiever, overachiever. I go first this time. Yeah, go first. No, I, I'd, I'd go middle of the line because overachiever in the sense that nobody thought he'd win two majors, but underachiever, if you look at the talent that he has, maybe he could have uh, he could have won more. So I'm going to go middle of the line on that. I'm going to harp more on Mert's final point and say that he was definitely an underachiever. Uh, I. I thought we should have seen probably two, three more majors from him. I thought he was immensely talented. So I, I tend to hone in more on that. Okay. Michael Chang, Steve, the best player to not become number one? Uh, probably. Probably, yes. And uh, do you want to, are we doing underachiever there? Sure, or yeah. Not? Both, yeah. yeah I, 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 I think that Michael, although I think he he, he put in – he tried so hard over the years. You cannot question his commitment to the game and, and his ability to play at, at, almost equally well on hard courts and clay. Uh, the grass he never quite mastered. But I, I would say he, he, too, was worthy of one or two more. And it took great players like Sampras and Becker to bring him down on the big occasion. So slight underachiever in my view. I'm going to go slight overachiever uh, because, I, you know, in terms of, Talent, raw talent. Uh, he was not near those other guys of, of that time, but he had incredibly quick feet, and uh, he overachieved because he was the, one of the hardest workers and one of the, one of the quickest guys to ever don the course in the open era. And but he didn't have any big weapons really. And uh, the one major title that he got was a bunch of miracles put together. But uh, but yet with with that with, with all that considered. He was able to, you know, stay in top five for how many years? I don't know, but uh, he was, uh, he, you know, he won a major. He reached the finals again in other surfaces. So I think he overachieved for uh, for what he had. All right, so last name, Peter Koda won a major. Mert, overachiever, underachiever? <laughs> underachiever. underachiever. I'm going to go with underachiever. So, you know, Peter Koda played a match against Sampras. It was a quarterfinal match, I believe, at the at the Australian Open. Steve, is that correct? Well, five, whole quarter wins in five sets. You're talking about the US US Open, right? I'm sorry. US I'm sorry, US yeah. Open. I mean yeah. that match is was was an outrageous um, uh, display of talent by both players. One of the best matches, highest quality matches you you'll see. But uh, no, I'd call him an uh, an, an underachiever. I, I think Corda with his talent should have won more. I'm not good. We're finally having a couple of mild disagreements here. I'm not calling him an overachiever. I, I don't believe that. I don't think he had the head quite the, the head on his shoulders that he needed. He was a brilliant shot maker, but I didn't consider him a great match player. But I would just add quickly to Mert's comment. That match at the U.S. Open was a beauty, for to be sure. Went right down to the wire, the fifth set tiebreak. They also played a five-setter earlier in 97 at yes. Wimbledon. Ampers won that was also extremely high quality. And another match later that year indoors. So at his best, he was fantastic, but I just don't think he could sustain it. And I don't think he had... He just didn't have that match-playing prowess, in, in my view. All right, so final one. A bit complicated, and I hope there's a disagreement. Boris Becker, Stefan Edberg, better career. I'm going to go with Stefan Edberg. Sorry, uh, uh, Saki. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> it, it, I, 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 may, I don't want... When have I ever copped out? But I might, I might do so now because, you know, you look at them with it. it, it sure, Bo- Stefan... 
Maybe Mert's right because Stefan won two of the three Wimbledon finals, which are the biggest matches they ever played. On the other hand, I look at the the breadth and scope of Becker's career, the, the, the big moments he had indoors at the year-end championships. Uh, it, and and I, 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 it's almost a draw. It's almost a draw to me. I, 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 so little separates them. I suppose I would give, for reasons I can't fully explain, slight edge to Becker. Okay. So how I'll many of my... uh, you would know this? How many uh, titles did the uh, Edberg win on various surfaces? I think he won on clay twice, I think or thrice. He okay. had 42 titles, Becker had 49. But I would say, I mean, I'll you know put my feelings aside. I think career is what performance is. So I think Edberg edged him because he also was here in number one. Becker is arguably the best world number two ever. Uh, but I would say who's the bigger underachiever? Boris Becker. I think he should have slams. anywhere in the neighborhood of eight to nine and he's at six and I, I think Edberg probably overachieved I think in Becker's, I got, I got a- in Becker's defense I just have to say this he should have been number one in 1989 the computer gave it to Lendl but Boris won Wimbledon and the open so I I would to me he was the true year-end number one in 89 in, in his defense I, I think in that in the in the two players rivalry the one thing that all three of us will agree upon is Is uh, Becker had the better serve, but Edberg had better volleys. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. And, and Becker and better footwork. Because Lendl in an true. interview that's had true. said that Stefan's biggest challenge was playing Edberg because Lendl could never outfox him in a rally. He had such great footwork despite having like that Eastern forehand, which was liability. He said it was a matchup of footworks. And Lendl said it was very tough to find Stefan off balance. So I think yeah. Edberg was a smooth mover. He also, said, he also said that it was very hard to ex- exploit the weakness in Stefan's forehand because Stefan could keep getting in from very deep positions. So Lendl, I, loved, I always loved the way Lendl analyzed the game. Didn't Lendl say, or was it someone else who said that the two, two quickest guys that they've ever seen at the net were Ed Berg and Vitas Gerolaitis? Yeah, Somebody think, said this. So, you know, yeah. Gerolaitis was super fast, too. At the net, it yeah. was impossible to pass him. But uh, yeah. yeah, but no doubt, Mert, your point is well taken on the volley. I mean, there's no, he was decidedly better to me at the net. And, and not that Boris was a bad volleyer by any means. But, I mean, Stefan had one of the all-time, right up there with Tony Roach, is the best backhand volleys ever. And Amazing. Amazing. All good forehand volley as well. So I think we covered a lot of ground here. If, uh, I think if you guys think this, this could be it, is there any parting thoughts on this kind of a podcast? I would like to make uh, one. Um, I would like to throw something out there, you know, about Agassi. You know, later in his book, he came out with, uh, with the episode where, um, where he should have been suspended, but what wasn't, uh, you know, the, the, and that comes, Sakib, you'd know the timeline better on this. The, I, I believe that came in 1997, right before he started rising again, yeah. you know, and, and then he goes on to win that French Open uh, where he didn't really have to face anyone in, in the top 10. But nonetheless, it's a great title, you know, he, he, and and that French Open means so much to uh, to Andre Agassi's legacy and, and career. And uh, I'm just wondering, you know, had he gotten suspended at the uh, which he should have been? I don't know, three months, six months, maybe for, uh, for, for, for violating the rules. What would, you know, how would he have, uh, would he have come back the way he came back immediately after that? And would he have captured the titles that he did? You know, this is just, a, you know, again, we're doing what if questions, so there's no right or wrong answer. But I thought the fact that he did not get penalized for that at the time is a big break for him, for, uh, 
for uh, for his legacy. I mean, it might have helped his legacy, you know, for 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 what he accomplished after that in the in the immediate year or two after that. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Steve. For example, well, no, it's a good point, and he he wrote about it. He was forthcoming to a degree in the book just to bring it up, but he never kind of explained how he got over the addiction to this crystal meth, or I believe is what he said he was taking, and it was in the you know he said it was in his trainer's drink. There was, he, I, that's the that's part that part surprised me that there wasn't some explanation for later how how he managed because it could have dangerously it could have ruined the rest of his career regardless of whether you should have been suspended. And I agree with you. And I also agree with you that you have to believe we're speculating, but that that could have scarred him emotionally to, you know, that would be out in the public domain that he, and why he was suspended and for how long and would he been able to come back with the same credibility among his fellow pros and how would they have looked at him? How would he have looked at himself? It's a fascinating question. And we, we're, we're never going to have the answer. I think no, I would... it's, it's a little bit like the, you know, Celeste Graf's story, right? I mean, Graf's, it doesn't take away anything from Graf's accomplishments. She still won those titles. And same thing with Agassi here. You know, we cannot remake history with what ifs, but it, but we can't speculate as to what, uh, what it could have been, you know. If, uh, and I just want to say, I just want to say quickly, because I know we need to close this. And I, 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 I really honestly believe that Graf would have continued, Merck, to compete quite well against Monica. I don't mean I have the edge. I think it would have been, I think what we lost out on was a phenomenal rivalry because I think Graf, you yes. made the point in that other podcast and quite well about how much Monica was improving and the improvement in her serve. And, you know, we hadn't seen the best of Celis yet. I agree with that. We had not, but I also think Graf would have responded and we could have had some gripping, suspenseful, just blockbuster matches between the two going back and forth in majors with Graf winning at Wimbledon and Celis sure. and Steffi answers in Australia. That to me is the saddest part of that rivalry is that sure. we never got a chance to see the, to see the follow-up on say Roland Garros 92 or, or Melbourne 93, because they had a lot more epics left in them. Yeah, for sure. And you know, uh, uh, no, you're right. And about, about the Agassi question too, you know, I'm always wondering from a standpoint of a, of a player or a coach, you know, if you get suspended and you have to st- sit out six months or three months, six months, right. you know, coming back to competition is not, always easy you know so it's, no what uh, Mert? you yeah. so right and look at McEnroe he felt he had to take six months off there at the end of the night or 19 start of the 86 season he never was really quite the same and 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 it, that potentially could have happened to Agassi and I would like to add a point not the answer you're looking for but in, in the fans were right that sold a book it was a very, you know, open account of what he went through. But I'm going to quote Marat Safin, who usually sometimes doesn't say a lot of intelligent things. But he said, ATP kept Agassi's secret, and he let the secret out in a book. So I think a lot of players were upset. One, he got away with it. And secondly, players and fans talk about something called a silent ban. So that kind of like opened a whole new world. Like they, he was a big superstar. Agassi playing was healthy for the sport money-wise. So they kind of did a you know silent ban for him while Richard Gasquet was banned for the same thing. So that kind of brings a lot of double standards into yeah. play. And yeah. there could be a whole podcast on this, but Mert, yeah, that's a brilliant point. I mean, I've, I would have never thought like, what are the counterfactuals for the 99 Roland Garros? But I think that just like, you know, he, look, everybody likes a book like that. I get it. But he, he violated the trust the bodies showed to him. And that's how I look at it. I mean, Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. 
So I think thank, I, I would like to thank you both. Two hours, 20 minutes. I think there's like five or six minutes we talked before this. So this is, again, an incredible podcast. I think we covered everyone from Sampras to Rio. Like if you can hang up, Steve and I will continue for another two hours and 20 minutes or so, you know. Okay, I'll see you guys <laughs> at 5 p.m. Say two hours and 20 minutes or 10 hours. <laughs> I'll see. I'll rejoin you guys when you guys are talking about 2010s. So. <laughs> no, it was great. Thank you, Sakib. It was a great conversation once again. And Steve, I'd like to thank you too. I, I, and I'm and I'm and I do have your book, and I will be a, I will be an avid reader of your book. So, Sampras. No, thanks, Bert. I appreciate that. And hopefully the listeners, you know, enjoy this conversation and maybe a few months down the road when we can find Mert on a suitable time zone to work with, maybe we can do 2010. So this is becoming like a series now. It started in sure. the 80s and 70s and now, you know, the 90s. So we can talk about the Federer and all years, you know, next time we are back together Let's, to do. That, that would be great. That would be wonderful. I, I look forward to it. And Happy New Year to all the listeners. Tennis for the Maxim will continue to produce more podcasts. With the blessing of Steve Flink and Merta Tunga, we will try to bring these guys more often because it just adds to the conversation every time they are behind the microphone.